Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore. Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. Then it feels vast and it encourages exploration a lot more. Certainly wouldn't put it in the same action bracket as Resident Evil 5 or 6. I think I've had more jump scares in this game than I've ever had in any Resident Evil. And that's not to its detriment. Because people will be like, oh, jump scares. But well-crafted, well-set-up ones, I was quite impressed. Lady Dimitrescu feels just like a meme rather than a nemesis for me, I'm afraid. I, I wasn't scared by her. Given Mercenaries and sort of extended play the other day, that it felt more like akin to playing, um, like, you know, the more recent Doom games than a Resident Evil game. And I say that as a full compliment. People will come away from this game with a smile on their face. They would have enjoyed it. Best storyline in a game since Resident Evil 5. And welcome to episode 69 of the Resident Evil podcast, experiencing RE Village the only way we know how, by moving to an actual village with the werewolves. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune, recording 47 metres down. Let's see who's joining us today. He's the Joker of our pack. It's the Batman. Hello there. Ultimate life form or room for improvement? You decide. It stars Tyrant. Hello. 25 years of Resident Evil. 25 years of him. In the community, it's Rombi. Hello. And finally, he's split from the Trevor and Chamberlain Construction Company. It's the biggest divorce since Kanye and Kim. It's George Trevor. Howdy. Coming up on today's podcast, we'll be having that deep dive into Resident Evil Village. Now that the dust has settled and spoilers are on board and well allowed. Review was done last time. We hope you all enjoyed it. That was our non-spoiler review. So today we're going to be focused on the lore implications, the storyline and what it means for the Resident Evil franchise going forward. As we said in the review podcast, this is a divisive game. There is so much to talk about today. Let's start with the news. First bit of news, Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Remember that? Yep, that's due to land on Netflix on the 8th of July. A new trailer was recently dropped showcasing some new footage with new characters Jason and Shen Mei, as well as a better look at President Graham. That's Ashley's father from Resident Evil 4. Uh, Quite a cool little trailer, I thought. The CGI looks very impressive, actually. Yeah, it looks visually appealing, Nicholas. Retroactive storytelling, oof. Yeah, that's a key point. This is set uh, in 2006, so we are in Lost in Nightmares territory. President Graham, as I mentioned, is still the president here, so it's post-Resident Evil 4. Curious where they're going to go down this something happens to the president route again, because haven't we already kind of done this in six? <laughs> like, yes, yeah. Retroactively make Leon look even worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're not just one president, but two. <laughs> I think one of the big concerns has been, and this is something that we've often spoken about on the podcast, is the impact this could have. It needs to be quite low-key, really, yeah. in the grand scheme of things, because something like Terra Grigia, an event that went on longer than the Raccoon City incident, three weeks, I believe, if memory serves me correct, is barely spoken about. 
as big. Oh, just that oh. random incident that happened in Italy. And it's like, well, hold on a minute there. We had a James Bond-esque satellite take down a city full of uh, BOWs. Uh, but it's kind of like brushed away because of the, the fact that it was done retroactively, retrospectively. So we've got to yeah, be careful yeah. that we don't have this big event seen in infinite darkness that isn't mentioned at all in Resident Evil 5 or 6. It's just making what was once a fantastic series recap in Resident Evil 5 absolutely worthless with each new entry you know especially if there's a like you know as the trailer depicts a huge attack on the white house i mean i say huge but it looks you know fairly large scale from what you can see and for it not to be mentioned is just odd there's some nice things they can do you know they can start leon's journey working you know under the sort of presidential you know sticking to the timeline there's so many interesting avenues they can can go to and they seem to want to just fill in holes that weren't there and as the sort of like forcing a new story creates an even bigger hole than present before i don't know i'm not a fan of it i mean i agree and i think this is something we might have to get used to because i don't know if, it, if it's too harsh if it's sort of lack of imagination or or what it is that, that it seems to be at the moment the creativity only seems to extend to like you say just going back to sort of revisiting a part of the timeline it's almost crammed full i mean how many things are going to happen in those in those years in the sort of late 1990s early 2000s you know it's, it's getting crazy sorry gg i think the bigger issue is not so much that they want to change things in that respect it's the fact they want to use these characters in a particular fashion and a time and the only times they can actually use them are in areas where they're either not being used or between areas they've been used because trying to put stuff too much now the characters are getting much much older and it's harder to we want to use leon or we want to use claire and it's like means it forces their hands to put it in that perspective so it's more about the question of whether or not they should even just use established characters and not create new ones or follow up on characters that we haven't had the chance to follow up on i think those are better options but the problem is they obviously want to keep choosing fan favorites quote unquote or at least the characters they think are the fan favorites so they want to keep using leon they want to keep using claire they want to keep using these characters rather than all of a sudden yeah it's very rare for them to go oh we, we should pick up that thread of what happened to billy cohen after resident evil zero or what about ark thompson or you know that's that, yeah well, i mean we moment. kind of joke about ark but no but you're right i mean this is what we should be doing because i think like even more reason to move on to new characters or these previous kind of side characters dario rosso's of, of this world because yeah just how much more you're going to revisit these characters and, and revisit the same tired narratives the frustrating thing is the lack of cohesion as well it's like the fact that you know leon and claire are going to see each other there's going to be some sort of inevitable zombie attack and the first thing they're going to say to each other is oh it's just like raccoon even though a year before this is set they had the big outbreak at harvardville which i you know willing to put one english pound on the table now and say the events of degeneration are not going to get mentioned at all in infinite darkness my other part of it is it stretches that disbelief level that the same two characters go through all these incidents you know what i mean there's only so many times where this duo or this pairing or this group should have to be subjected to the same sorts of incidents again and and you're right because things won't get mentioned much like stuff that's happens now timeline wise afterwards won't reference this event or events around it because obviously it wasn't planned still somewhat to keep that consistent yeah they probably won't mention or very likely unmentioned recent events in the timeline that were previous animated films or games degeneration ends with um you know leon saying to claire the next time we meet let's hope it's a little more normal and now we know it's like literally months later and it's another zombie attack an extension of this though as well is what we're seeing we've discussed this with resident evil 8 
where some monumental addition to the law, some may say or, or may not agree, shoehorned in in the ninth instalment. And that's what I was talking about, you know, this kind of lack of creativity. Instead of kind of, I don't know, adding to the narrative in, in, in some more cohesive way, we're just given this like this huge narrative change, which, hold on a minute, we, we all know if this were the case, it would have been mentioned in previous titles. And it's the, it's the same kind of thing. Just, you know, just adding something in almost like a, a thoughtless way uh, that's kind of just retconning everything that went before it. They've got to be careful. And interestingly, as opposed to, say, like a 90-minute film, this is obviously a series. It's going to be structured very differently. So I'm, I'm quite interested to see how it evolves. And do we get some huge epic season finale type thing and how it feels i'm worried that perhaps it will feel like it was originally planned as one movie and then split down you know split into little bits i'm thinking the original clone wars movie was basically four episodes or something stitched together and you could kind of tell that but it'd be interesting I, i've got a feeling they've planned it but, but I'm, I'm quite interested how they're going to structure this in like episodically like yes are they are they going to peak our interest at the end of each episode with kind of like like a flash gordon type of you know someone's just on the verge of death and we won't find it you know i mean i don't it's going to get quite cheesy if they're going to you know if that's going to be repetitive it depends you know. if they drop all the episodes at once because netflix don't tend to do that if they drop all 13 in one go they can't say join us next week to see if leon yeah, exactly. survives it's like we know he does <laughs> they know people binge it they don't always tail end episodes like if you watch like the marvel stuff and that they're not many of them end on a cliffhanger as such they're just it just sort of ends and then the next episode picks up where it left off well we'll see what happens with that because that will then probably determine how we're going to do our Info darkness coverage That does finish gaming news. We quickly move on to site news. We just want to give a big shout-out to our new patrons. We haven't done uh, a patron shout-out for a while simply because of the uh, the structure of our podcast. So we have a, n- a huge number of patrons I want to say thank you to. So big thanks to Aaron Z, Momat, Sergio TX, Albert Whiskers, Brooksy925, Happy Smelly, Umbrella Inc., JC Wesker, MC Milky, Dynamite Heady, Kendo Gunshop, and Rainbow Knight Erosen. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon. It means the absolute world to us and keeps the podcast and the website going. We've got other things coming up soon, so uh, keep your eye on that. If anyone's interested in joining our Patreon, then uh, you can go on our website. You'll find a link at the bottom of the of, of the main homepage. Uh, if you're interested, and just as a new benefit slash perk that we've added, should you subscribe and donate and support us on Patreon for 12 months, you will now be a receiver of a very exclusive Resident Evil podcast t-shirt. Our Patreon is now coming up to 12 months old, uh, so the first batch of exclusive rep t-shirts will be sent out to our patrons in the next four to six weeks that does finish all our site news we now turn our attention to the law discussions of resident evil village long ago a young girl went with her mother to pick berries for her father who was hard at work but the forest greeted them with a dark cold silence the bushes empty Yet determined to find the berries, the rascal broke free from Mother's grasp and vanished into the trees. Mother's worried cries faded fast as the girl ran on, over vine and under branch, and into the forest deep. Feeling strange eyes upon her, the girl recalled Mother's scary bedtime tales, and her throat became bone dry. Then the Pat Lord appeared. He greeted her warmly and bit his own wing. Come, child, quench your thirst, he said. So she drank the thick, dark blood and smiled with joy. 
passing through the graveyard, menacing storm clouds loomed, and the air turned bitingly cold. The girl was shivering in her thin clothes. Then a dark weaver appeared, and with a click of his fingers crafted mist into a beautiful dress. Come, child, warm yourself, he coaxed. So she clothed herself and smiled with joy. Across waters deep and ominous she went, hoping a boat she found would carry her home. But hunger's grip tightened and her heart grew heavy. Then the fish king appeared and offered one of his many fins. Come, child, eat your fill. So the girl ate and smiled with joy once more. Continuing on, she soon entered the forest's dark heart. Then an iron steed appeared, bearing a beautiful golden gear. The creature said nothing as the girl approached and snatched what she thought was another gift. The horse grew angry and summoned the other monsters. Terror filled the girl's heart as the wild wind rose around the beast. Suddenly, a witch appeared, dark yet regal. Resident Evil Village. I proclaimed in the last podcast that Resident Evil Village has the best storyline in a Resident Evil game since RE5. And I stand by that. And we'll discuss why I think that. But to get the ball rolling, it's eight weeks since we played. We've all had a few playthroughs. So where does its storyline and lore fit? I think the best way to go through this, go through the documented events which encompass many, many aspects leading up to the events that we play as Ethan during the game. Chronologically, and I'm sure Batman will interject as well, some of the files are not dated. A lot of the files are dated. So we're trying to hazard a guess as to when they take place. But there are some inferences throughout the files and throughout the game that we can kind of lead on to. What we're going to do is start with Mother Miranda, the main baddie in this particular game. Her odd plan, if you like, to bring back her child. So let's get the ball rolling. What did everyone think of Mother Miranda in terms of her storyline, the sad passing of her daughter uh, during the Spanish flu pandemic, I believe, and then her ultimate aim. So, John, we'll start with you. Where did you feel Mother Miranda sits? Um, right at the bottom. I think she's one of the worst. There was just nothing interesting about her for me. Yeah, you know, tragic backstory with a baby, but then some sort of magical plot line to bring it back to life. It's just, I just didn't like it. I don't want to be too negative straight away, but I just I just really didn't like her. She just didn't resonate with me at all. I think she's one of the worst villains the series has ever had. Well, even taking that kind of sympathetic view as to what she wanted to do, I mean, it's in the same sort of mould as Glen Arias, that type of personal storyline of wanting to you know, bring someone back but bringing the world in chaos. Was there any element of that you felt worked? The only thing I really liked about Miranda was her work with the connections and how they tied her into Resident Evil 7 with the development of Eveline. Yes, you know, the, the whole story with Eva dying of the Spanish flu and her then wanting to resurrect her, yeah, that's that's fine but it's like, is this where we've arrived at with Resident Evil where we've got like a, you know, a woman who can freely shapeshift who's a hundred years old, who's immortal and who's splitting babies into four parts and sending them off in glass jars. You know, how have we got here from 
what happens in the first Resident Evil. There was a lot of elements in this game which just have caused this series to jump the shark for me. I did not like the story of this game. So I was tired. In terms of Mother Moran, where did you feel that she, she was with her storyline? I'm kind of of the same ilk. Not quite to that level of feeling like a dislike to it as such but I certainly found it rather underwhelming and and I think part of that is down to how much emphasis they put on implying that there's going to be a big history um, of Umbrella and things like that and my biggest problem with characters like Miranda and like the fact that they've made her like a you know an immortal hundred year old seemingly endless potential in terms of like her abilities and things she can do I just find it hard to believe all this is going on in a secluded little village somewhere concurrently to like vast global outbreaks and things like that you know you know all the things that all these characters have been through and there's this unseen threat it feels so disjointed i actually think it does more harm than good unfortunately and although like i don't certainly don't dislike village i actually quite like it quite a lot i tend to find i'm more driven with ethan's story than anything else in the game to be honest i think everything else falls far short of like ethan's plight and that does include miranda and we've discussed this so many times on this podcast but she's another villain who turns up and disappears in the same game commendable work as john says to tie the narrative into seven and i you know as we've affectionately started to call it the law room i do like that a lot and i like seeing all the photos of like you know Mia and Alan with Miranda and stuff I think that's all really expertly done but her as a character and as a concept I think is is weak I do I do have to agree with John there unfortunately George what's your take on on Miranda um, during your playthrough well I mean John took a phrase I was going to literally open my little speech with jumping the shark how have we got here and to want to do the game justice and, and respect the producers involved and to discuss this narrative you know in a serious manner I just I I do find it more and more increasingly difficult. How has Mother Miranda earned her place in the narrative, you know, such a significant role? I just think it's short-sighted for Capcom to think that they can just uh, provide us with this groundbreaking monumental part of, of lore in just a throwaway file. Where is the cutscene? Like, for example, in Resident Evil Zero with, you know, with Marcus being assassinated. It just didn't feel like she earned anything in the series to hold such a significant place. And I just, like I think Stars and, and John have alluded to, it's very difficult to immerse yourself and connect with the tragedy of her losing her daughter when again it's just another character immediately brought to our attention with this tragedy which is already over by the time we've arrived yeah i just feel very frustrated because i felt with resident evil 7 capcom knew confidently knew how this series was going forward they'd really got things right and it, it just feels with this game they've kind of just gone back to the resident evil 6 drawing board and just tried that's why we've got this mother miranda character and the four lords they just seem to have just tried to be everything for every man and have thrown so much at this game and kind of spread themselves too thin i would have liked a more down-to-earth antagonist and then perhaps we would have had kind of more empathy for her tragedy and seeing that tragedy you know build up through the story rather than just have it thrown all at us in one file right at the end so you're missing it 10 years ago and yeah you know and we've um, got to take it on the chin so very quickly you know that she there was no reference of her in the spencer mansion no reference you know when we learned, learned about brandon bailey it's very tacked on and i just think you know very very unsubtle and, and very jarring uh Rombie, what was your take on other miranda and then we'll quickly touch upon actually what she did do and why she did it after that nick you picked a great like opening topic for this didn't you <laughs> 
<laughs> on the face value, if I take away the, the complaints that the guys have said, like, I think there's nothing wrong with the idea of the character. I love the idea of the Spanish flu. It seems relatively interesting, especially in this time and age. I don't think I have problems with it the same way the guys do, but listening to what GT said, I kind of, like, almost think that more hints throughout the narrative about what was going on and why and fleshing out that backstory making it feel much more sympathetic along the time if you had been reading a history think about like the end credit scene and you've got that panel of stuff that's going on if you got told that story or things to do with miranda's daughter that took away the names and then later on the reveal was that the story that you've been hearing about the whole time was the explanation as to why she was doing this that would have been brilliant it would, yeah. it, it would have made more impact and i so i can see the complaints i mean i think we, we have that issue with yeah it is a law room you literally have this giant exposition dump of a room at the right at the end of yeah. the game just to kind of backfill everything and i think that's yeah. the biggest issue i think if you took the time to craft that information out and what it makes me feel like is they we need, right we need a bad guy we need we need bad people we need an explanation for this village we need if we need this but we don't really care too much about the backstory and then literally at the last minute someone's like eh, we should probably fill that in i guess and then dumped it all at the end and didn't think about how to actually work that narrative there's a problem i can see with tonal consistency which is that they very much want this to be ethan winter's journey they want it to follow his narrative and follow his point so of course you can't have flashbacks you can't have this narrative story and then eventually we get to the chris redfield bit and it's like well chris is going to be the person who finds that information and there is a massive tonal inconsistency with chris's character as well in regards to that information but it's it's that same constant problem whereas i think they could have been a lot more smarter about how they drip feed you information about why things in the village were happening the way they were not just about the four lords but actually about mother miranda but without actually naming her until the end when you realize hey that narrative i keep picking up about this girl who died or like the village being impacted by spanish flu and like all the stuff that happened a hundred years ago has a massive consequence and that would be a much more interesting way to approach the storyline and make you feel more empathetic towards her and not have her just be such a one-note villain even if she ends up being a one game film and i just very quickly add to that i just completely agree and, and don't you agree that that's exactly well similar version we got of that in the spencer mansion with the tragedy of the trevors you know characters that we well we do see lisa but we're off screen and we get the files building up so we have that empathy so that when we finally read when jessica suggests to lisa that they're going to escape and then that escape doesn't happen and we read lisa's revelation that that, that escape's never going to happen you know you really feel for them because that kind of that's been earned whereas with like you say this is just thrown at us in, in one of the final rooms I would say though, I mean, if you look in the graveyard, you find either grave. Yeah, that's that's the only counter to it is that you find the grave early on, which is which is fine. That would be great part of establishing that. But imagine if you could find a bunch of files related to that grave and you didn't quite realise that Mother Miranda was this person, you know, because she was under a different name or she had a nickname or you know, like there was just stuff about the child and the child's name wasn't so obvious, you know, like things that became a, a revelation, you know, and. A, of itself and kind of set up the story like i can see that being a, a very interesting connection you know i was just gonna say i wonder if there's the opportunity for hag yeah to have played a played a role there i know because you only really see it twice three times don't you <laughs> 
um, the last time. Yeah, her, her rambling some backstory or, or, you know, even that would have been something. I mean, we haven't even talked about, and, and I know John will probably, he kind of alluded to it, but it's the fact that, like, oh, so she goes wandering and finds this giant thing under the ground and it just happens to be the cure-all for this problem and it just so happens to be in this village and, like, there's a lot of convenience there too. Yeah. I can see people's complaints with that that, that I have seen. It, it's it's. Do we know, though, that she lived in the village for half Well, the graves that the graves there so we assume that's the case like it's just like you said the village seems to exist the only discussion we get is that she went wandering and it's, a, it's an awful lot of convenience you've got these connections to spencer who searched you know the ends of the earth and finds his you know his goal in africa and yet she just stumbles down a hole in the ground and it is awfully convenient i have to admit <laughs> So we've touched on then that her whole motives were driven by the the sad passing of her daughter, Spanish flu, um, as as Rob says, the you know quite poignant as it happened, you know, given um, the the kind of global situation at the moment. So she has this personal goal to resurrect her daughter, bring her back to life, and then as she finds a cave and discovers the megamasite. The only question I have at this point is is the megamasite what we see with chris that kind of fetus thing because there looks to be two elements towards the megamasite you've got that kind of weird giant fetus thing but then you've also got in the other part of the village the roots that go all underneath the village uh, which of course erupt during chris's campaign are they one of the same thing or are there two separate organisms i think they're all one of the same thing the megamasite is described in the um, concept art isn't it as um, uh, what does it say? It says something like it's a clump of parasites that have gathered together, form this disturbing shape that looks like a fetus, and it's the centre of the mould network, and it's been spreading the roots out for hundreds of years before Miranda's found it underneath the village. And interestingly, one of the reasons Miranda needs Ethan is during the final boss fight, she says she needed Ethan to not only kill her false children, which was the four lords, but also to reawaken the uh, Megamycete. So because the Megamycete is essentially this data storage hive mind for all the infectants, I think Ethan killing the four leaders of these houses has somehow awakened it and caused it to go rampant, which is why it suddenly starts bursting out of the ground everywhere once you've killed Heisenberg. There's so much convenience within this game that it's very difficult, I found it very difficult to sort of connect, you know, what was law and what was just happening because, you know, it, effectively it just suited the narrative where, where the writers wanted it to go. And so I, I wasn't quite sure... You know, again, the, the unfortunate timing of our protagonist, they just happen to be in this village when this huge volcanic, you know, organic eruption occurs. So I was I was curious as to the specific timing as to why. I presumed it had just been growing and growing and growing and, and you know, the, the, yeah. its kind of clone army is spreading and spreading. And it just so happened that was the moment when it when it was exploded. But I'm really interested to hear that that was provoked particularly by Ethan's presence and what he was doing. Yeah, that's what Miranda says because Heisenberg is under the illusion that Miranda was testing Ethan by putting him up against all four lords to see if Ethan was worthy enough to join them but I think that was just a ruse and what she was actually doing was she wanted Ethan to hopefully kill them all and in doing so stimulate the Megamycete that's what she alludes to if you listen to her dialogue during the final boss fight anyway and I guess that makes more sense than they just convenient timing as GT alluded to. It's interesting too because Miranda herself, like during that boss fight at the end, she turns into a extension of the parasitic fetus at the end. It's got like a giant maw with it in the middle, and it is it creates that shape. The maw creates that shape of the uh, the symbol, the four the the feathered wings. She loses her powers really at the end. 
I think that's the whole. Mm. Isn't, isn't I, that like a, it's almost like she's consumed by it, basically. Yeah, I think it's like the V complex in Dark Side Chronicles, that type of thing, or Salazar maybe with the Queen Plaga. That's the impression I got because I think Rose is reborn, so therefore the creation of Eva failed. I think that drained her of all her powers. I think that's what it's mentioned. Along with Ethan kicking her ass. Along with Ethan, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I suppose from the law point of view, there must be something genetically special about Miranda as to why, upon encountering said giant fetus mould thing in a cave, she just didn't become, well, a lichen, I suppose, or a um, would be a lichen. What's special about her? She must have some special attribute that that's not alluded to in the games or the files, as far as I know. That's the problem. That's another reason why I don't like it. You know, why was she suddenly granted immortality just by seemingly touching this Megami seat when we know practically the whole Resident Evil series is all about these people struggling to find the key to immortality? And then all of a sudden, we just have this woman who, in her grief, has found this fungal colony and has touched it and has not only been granted immortality but she's been randomly given the ability to mimic anything or anyone yeah shifting. and there's no explanation for it at all and and you think we took the piss out the way like paul anderson has steered the live action films with alice and the super soldier stuff and some of the stuff they've done in village is 10 times worse than that I don't want to agree, but I do because this was my problem throughout the game. I'm searching for explanation, and I'm thinking, well, okay, but Batman will will, will let me know. <laughs> you know, there there is, I'm you know, I'm missing a file, or or maybe you know, and I go back and replay it. But like you say, there is no explanation, and so it's very difficult to connect and immerse yourself in a game when you're spending a lot of time confused or, or wondering why antagonists particularly are behaving in a certain way, almost contradictory to to what they actually they're saying their plans were. The issues I have with Miranda as well is the damage that you know her presence inflicts upon other titles in the series you know one of the things we always praise this series for is when a later game complements an earlier title and actually sort of infers to it in interesting ways and whatnot this is is arguably you know a very good link to resident evil 7 and it's quite respectful in that but Spencer's presence as much as it doesn't bother me like it does some people the fact that miranda has achieved immortality albeit through a way that spencer doesn't necessarily agree with it still goes against some of the files you read in lost in nightmares where he's a Essentially cursing the world and existence for his frail body and you just think i know you're driven to using a virus to you know shape and you know make real your plans but surely if your body's literally on about to give up wouldn't you just give miranda a call and just use her method it just yeah. seems like he's gonna take this stubbornness to the grave even though it's the one thing he's cursing the world for it, it doesn't tie up all that much unfortunately hit the nail on the head there spencer's minor role is fine for what it is i don't really have an issue with him rejecting the mold in favor of a virus because given his goals and what he wanted to achieve when he was a younger man by building a master race it sort of makes sense but what i don't agree with and what Sean means is the way he seemingly randomly breaks contact from Miranda completely. Granted, he may have believed a virus was more suited to his goals, but given the properties of the mould, it seems hard to believe that in all the years Umbrella existed, at no time did they try and acquire samples of the mould for study, even just to unlock the secrets behind it. And again, in later years, why rely on Alex Wesker to discover the secrets behind immortality when he already knows Miranda and he already knows she's immortal? You know, why send Alex to an isolated island with thousands of test subjects in increasingly desperate attempts to make a virus when he was a dying man and he potentially knew his saviour was in Eastern Europe all along? You know, this is why retroactive storytelling can be a bad thing in some respects. Yes, on the surface, it looks to be an excellent reference and a tie-in to the older games, but and these are the kind of things fans always gush over, but when you look more 
more closely and peel back the surface, it really does cause more problems than it solves. You say that about retroactive storytelling, and yeah, it can be effective if done with integrity and, and appreciation and you know loving care for the narrative that went before it. But but what I find skewed is that I can't then go from that to then say and and look, you know, that Capcom have done this with all the subtlety of you know of a bull in a china shop. But we like stars pointed out, you know, before it's true that that video, the production video that shows the love and the care and the attention and just a sincere desperation and love for the series that they do have, the producers do have, and the writers. And we saw in that video. I just again wonder whether it. It's less kind of insensitivity and more just simply a cultural difference that just, you know, this is a Japanese game. And at the end of the day, I think there's less concern about, you know, breaking those kind of past elements and and more just concern about, you know, the narrative in the now and just having a spectacular, you know, narrative now for us all to enjoy and not to look back with the detail that we are. It's that behind the scenes video show, it does show, you know, a passion to want to get it right. But it definitely does come across more in terms of just wanting to make a great game. I don't think we've seen that same level of passion for the narrative. Totally confess that when I went through the Baker incident report and the Brandon Bailey page 41, I believe it is, it's so notable, you know, took us all by surprise and we were all like gushing as we were, you know, starting to sort of dissect the game. But that's another thing, like Miranda, like the Spencer reference, that once you break it down and scrutinise it, it's so surface. It was just, it's just put in there so people are almost disarmed by how awesome a reference it is that you actually look beyond its problems it actually creates. We'll get to Brand and the connections mm. a, a, a bit later on, but you make a good point. What I wanted to touch on as well, because it was a nice segue into Spencer, something that Rob mentioned. Perhaps Miranda needed a, just a bit more explanation in terms of her adaption if you like to the mold perhaps she was special perhaps she was basically someone like Wesker or even a tyrant host if you like that's why she reacted in that way I agree I think the situation in Spencer ignoring the mold is valid I I didn't have a problem with him going "This, this is not what I want for world domination you know sod off that's fine but what you've also raised is is true about spencer then you know bemoaning his uh bad luck if you like uh, and his old age and frailty why didn't he just get hold of miranda i wonder if there was the opportunity and i think that's what uh, rob was kind of alluding to to say actually she was a one of the kind because only she adapted particularly well <laughs> to the mold everyone else all the other four lords were inherently failures in a different manner and that's why he didn't want to make that t- telephone call if you like that's why he didn't want to track her down there could be something there just to make it a bit like i I can't i can't call her i'd almost wouldn't mind if there was like a further letter where he does actually try to contact her and she basically just refuses him deems him as unworthy or something like that and that's in an edition of like Miranda's diary that you can find. You yeah, know, Spence tried, you know, has contacted me wanting the secrets to immortality. You know, I've deemed the old fool unworthy or something, you know, just something that implies that he did actually try at the 11th hour but they don't do that. What we've got to remember, though, is that for hundreds of years, yeah, <laughs> for hundreds of, well, hundreds, you know, a hundred years or so, there's nothing going on in Eastern Europe. You know, there's the village is fine. You know, there's just the castle and there's just, you know, four crazy people living there doing their experiments. There isn't... A Lycan stronghold still up and running, isn't it? There's a Lycan stronghold, yeah. Um, but obviously Miranda's keeping them all at bay and for experimentation purposes for and so forth so but there there isn't that kind of outbreak it's a very controlled and contained little thing going on so it, it, you know it's not on the world stage it's not like oh my god there's this huge outbreak going on that kind of thing so we, we've got to remember that as well you know the shit only hits the fan when she gets rose and then 
you know the plans then come into focus i just wonder whether that there is a bit of scope there to expand upon why spencer didn't want to pursue with that because i think you know in his old age he could just go give us a bit of mold and that'll at least at least give me another 200 years to find uh to become the god that i want to become but rob is anything you wanted to add about that point there's nothing inherently wrong on the surface value of what it is if there was more care put into expanding this with a bit more thought but i mean yeah as gt and sean also alluded to it could be just down to the fact that you know the focus is on making this a good game with a consistent tonal story to seven and the greater lore concepts were not as important but as i kind of go back to like that lore dump and like the exposition at the end is not very good storytelling it's not it doesn't engage me on a good level where you you literally come into a room that tells you everything that you've been missing out information wise at the end of a game that that's not good game design either enough remember evelyn and her power over them all rose is her successor no rose is evelyn's true complete form she will grow to fully control the masses and i must have her Fuck you, you crazy bitch! What I want to move on now to is to discuss two elements here. The mold slash Kadu and the four lords. So uh, let me, Lady Dimitrescu, or Dimitrescu, however you want to pronounce it, Heisenberg, Moreau, and Donna. But yeah, so I want to talk about like the, the, the actual application, if you like, of the mold. So it's very different to what we see in Seven. And so I want to park what we know about Seven and how Eevee work and just purely focus on the law that's established in Village about how this particular mould works. Because as we know in the files, there's a clear difference between Eastern European mould, the original mould, Megamosite, and then the Connections synthetic-esque mould or the the Dolby mould as I I like to call it. So as long as we keep them separate we can then discuss how they kind of work with each other because that's a big discussion as well. But in terms of what we see in the game there's discussions in the files about brain affinity I think. Is it functionability something like that? About how the Kadu has uh, has interacted with the functioning level of uh, its host. Now if you haven't been functioning well with the Kadu you tend to be a lichen. If you have a high functioning ability and affinity uh, I think is the term they use then you're more likely to have uh, better powers. That seems to be the general gist that's put in the files. So should we just go through each of them starting with uh, everyone's favourite vampire? Because I think uh, John, you'll probably correct me. I think we've probably got the best details about her as to when that happened. I think we're, we're, t- I think we're talking the 1950s uh, with Lady D. So what do we know about her and how she, she became nine feet tall and seemingly able to take any form of hit from a gun? Well, Alcina is clearly... I think she's the oldest of the four lords. Um, I think her, the file that talks about her assimilation with the parasite she says she's 44 years old um, and we know from the maiden's diary she's in charge of the castle in the late 1950s so i guess i would have to say she was born around the sort of 1910s something like that she's not originally from the village is another thing we've also told but she obviously belongs to house dimitrescu which has its origins in the village as well what's interesting is the whole vampirism thing was explained by this hereditary blood disease she has which is why she needs to um, drink human blood to maintain her health. But out of the four lords, I think she's the second best adapter behind Heisenberg. She doesn't age. You know, she's grown to, is it nine foot six? 
and she's got these retractable sort of claws. What is interesting as well about the Kadoo Parasite is they seem to have the ability to transform into their monster form and then back to human form. I noticed when I was playing the other week when Ethan was fighting her when she was in a dragon form. She says, only Mother Miranda has seen me in this form, which I thought was quite interesting. And likewise, we see Moreau mutated as that big fish before we see him in his normal form. So I think that's quite interesting how they can seemingly mutate back and forth at will. Alcina is probably the most well-developed of the four, but I still don't think we know enough about her. Who says Resident Evil 6's Simmons mutations are far-fetched, eh? (laughs) so yeah alcino has this hereditary blood disease and what i liked about her was that that need for blood then led on to the law that's surrounding the uh, the slaves and the sam samrak i think they're called the samak uh flying gargoyle things in the castle and i thought that was quite a nice little connection you know draining the blood the river of you know, the beds of blood, if you like, under the castle and all the wine and things like that. It's almost like her, her larder of blood. But she she gets very excited when a new blood comes in. Again, parts of this game that just feel that Capcom went down the wrong road with the, the Resident Evil 6, they just didn't learn the lesson from that, is that we got so much more detail, it felt, uh, and they just felt so much more depth to the Mother Miranda backstory. Take the, the, those fantastic files that we've got with the artwork of how her daughters, you know, metamorphosed from, you know, human bodies into flies and, and back again, you know, the little backstory we've got with that, which is fantastic. But it seemed like with each Lord, it kind of the story and the narrative and the BOW that went with that all kind of got weaker and weaker and weaker with, I feel, that Moreau right down at the bottom. And it almost just felt that, and again, they're just spreading themselves too thinly. And if perhaps they'd just gone with the two lords, I just think it would have been—it just would have been a lot better. It just feels almost so top-heavy, you know, Mother Miranda and everything that she brings uh, to this narrative when compared to, say, some some of the other lords. Lady, you mean you mean Lady? D- yeah, Lady D. So yeah, Lady yeah. D. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you make a really good point actually, because there is, uh, there's there's quite a lot of information contained in the castle, especially with her daughters, and that's a cool file uh, oh, yeah. about about the bugs. There is actually quite a lot of information when you combine it with the maiden demo and those dates, because I think you can work out that the maiden is ingrid i think yeah that's right her name's missing off the file in the maiden demo is it the observation report or something ingrid's um name is missing off that in the demo so it implies that yeah she is the maiden who's captured you pick up ingrid's necklace as well so you fight her in the main game yes you do of course you do yeah that's true Mm. as one of these slave things but again that, that law was so cool because it's like they're, they're literally like drained of blood and then, yeah, they're, well, they're given the kadoo, they're given the mould, drained of their blood and then they're just kind of these weird zombie-like things, you know, and they're creepy and it worked really well. And then the flying gargoyles are a nice expansion upon that and that really works. And I, what George says is true, it does go a bit, I'll say downhill. Because I don't, I don't think that's fair. Because I think each lord brings their own flavour to the game, but the the explanations do become a bit weaker. I think some of the earlier, obviously, you under the concept art that it's unlockable and stuff, and some of the story backstory stuff thought about having in and then decided to cancel are much more engaging than the ones they went with. They went with a much more simplified option, so it may be a time frame thing. Because yeah. it was obviously the whole thing with Heisenberg's family and Ben Viento, I think, is a good example of that. You know the whole backstory as well, yeah. Corner. Backstory. Oh, that was a huge mm. whole thing to Ben Viento. I mean, I it made me just think. Yeah, if we just had the castle with, with Lady Dimitrescu and perhaps Donna, then I just it would have just been wonderful, and you know, because they could have expanded, you know, for the, the greater horror that Silent Hill element, and then perhaps for more of the adventure, we could have got you know the, the village leading to the castle. I don't just don't think we needed the Heisenberg and the Moreau. I just want to be very, just make quick this point because I have 
sort of pointed out a lot of things about this game that fell short for me. Capcom did a lot right with this game. And I just think that, you know, these are frustrations, like you said, they're not necessarily criticisms, they're just frustrations that there was a there was a template and some atmosphere and narrative that was just wonderful within this game that I just think with a little bit more care and explanation and a little bit more focus and maybe keeping more to the Resident Evil 7 frame of just being more kind of minimalist and, and just, just focusing on a more simpler story and fleshing that out and things could have been a lot better. And back to Lady D as well, though, there's, there's some quite cool artwork, um, I think, in the, in the games on the, on the back of some of the pictures of the Kadoo being administered. Uh, she's laying in the bed. Not quite sure what size the, the Kadoo is. It seems to vary. Yeah, the ones in the jars are quite large, aren't they? Yeah, but then, you're kind of, then it's kind of implied that it's these parasitic, uh, microscopic, quite unclear as to what precisely that one is. There's a picture of Mother Miranda, uh, an image of Mother Miranda administering Kadoo. I, I assume Lady D when she's in bed. Well, the whole Kadoo thing itself is a little bit underbaked, I think. John might have some more comments and Sean as well, but it's a little bit confusing in regards to like, so it's a compressed parasite version of the Megamycete, but for host consumption, but it's no, but it kind of ends up being like a miniature version, but it's not very well explained. I think that's my understanding. Has anyone got a better explanation than, than that, than my understanding from the actual game? I think you're right there. It's it's not explained very well at all. I think the Kadoo, it's created by exposing a variant of nematode to the Megamycete, which infects and digests its tissue. These nematodes then are then genetically tinkered with and spliced together so that when they mature inside a host, they essentially look like a miniature version of the Megamycete, which itself is described in concept art as a giant clump of parasites that have grouped together to form this sort of embryo-like image. I think the Kadoo parasite works as some kind of stabilising agent to stop the mould from running riot when it's exposed to someone. And because these nematode parasites thrive in soil and wet environments and feed on bacteria, fungus, living tissue and dead organisms, therefore they have so much DNA in from many different creatures, this could explain the diverse range of mutations we see in the game. And the Parasites, I think, can also be artificially manipulated to produce different creatures as well. But you're right, Rob, there's, there's just not enough information about what exactly it is and what it does. Um, we just know it was created to give Miranda a better chance of finding a suitable vessel for Eva. Isn't it just? Isn't it only one reference when Mother Miranda makes the point that it's a more efficient way, and it's just her ability to find a vessel, you know, in the short time. Well, just you know, in terms of just, you just needed to test a, a greater range of, of test subjects in order to find a vessel. And it just, she, and I think, just used the word efficient. I assumed that was so that she didn't have to drag each test subject down into these underground caverns and get them directly implanted. But yeah, I, I got that part, but beyond that, it wasn't. Yeah, there's not a lot it's, of explanation because I wasn't sure if it was effective just nothing more than than an effective you know administering tool and so it was just like a shell and nothing more than that but it's interesting to go beyond that and think that the actual biology of those parasites well it might be it might be exactly what you say i'm just speculating here because you know the game just doesn't tell us enough about them it's the best explanation for so i just one thing that really bugs me in the game is is that huge disparity and range between the, the mutations of the four lords yeah we'll, we'll come back to that but also this was my understanding of the whole purpose of the four lords was to find the vessel that was their job was that, that's how i read the files it was like here's the kadoo you can have do what you like you know and, and they did to help that process so lady d was taking you know people from the village experimenting on them we saw moreau doing what he wanted to make the lichens he was having lots of fun doing that and heisenberg was doing something similar uh, with his you know making them more mechanical which i know he was trying to plot against miranda but 
there's no way he could have done all that without her noticing what he was up to. So I'm assuming that there was this belief by Miranda that they were all doing these experiments to help her find that vessel. Yeah, I think so, but I don't think she really expected any of them to succeed. I think she basically just kept them alive as her children because they were the most successful candidate she had to date. I mean, again, I, clearly, I don't think she, I don't think she particularly cared about them. I mean, she she planned on Ethan getting rid of all four of them because once she yeah. had Rose, she had no need of them anymore. Again, I wasn't sure if I was missing something. There didn't seem to be a lot of explanation as to what worth they had other than kind of she was referencing them as her children. So I wasn't sure if she kind of had this motherly, genuine connection with them. But I wasn't quite sure as to why she was keeping them alive. And then in terms of wanting to finally see their demise, well, surely she could have dealt with that herself pretty easily anyway. Maybe it's part of the test, you know, in of itself. Like if Ethan is worthy and therefore Rose is worthy by being Ethan's daughter, if Rose is as good as she expects, she expects Ethan's probably going to dispatch these other false lords. I think a lot of what we're saying here tonight proves there is, there is a great game kind of underneath all of this I feel and you know just again another example you know people that you know fans I don't want to get fans to be disparaging but those that you know really do sing the praises of this game you know perhaps look back like John says how have we got back to this point look at the far we got the, the Keeper's Diary and how that chronicled the very kind of slow you know descent from human to zombie and that's how we got an explanation as to what the t-virus does and and so we know and 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 then we see that personified in the zombies when we play the game and you could compare that to what we get in village when moreau says oh you know i stuck something in their bellies and it turned into a werewolf i mean what explanation other than that do we get as to for the the lichens being like that and you know that's that's the equivalent resident evil 8's equivalent of of the keeper's diary I, I, don't I, mind, I, I don't mind that, you know, if, if that's what I go with, as long as there's consistency. But where's the um, explanation? That's what I mean. You know, in well, the, in I, the game. I, I would say that's just what that's just what the mold does. It turns you into a lichen. I could accept it. It's more of a reason. So if we will we'll skip uh, Donna for the time being, but look at Moreau. If you actually look at his file in the Lord Dump room, it actually says he has low brain affinity towards the parasite, um, which is exactly the same terminology that was used for the lichen so why did he turn into you know a walking talking fish and why didn't he turn into yeah uh, into into a lichen all the others all had quite high brain affinity towards the kadu which is in you know some explanation you know part of an explanation as to why they didn't become uh, a lichen it doesn't explain how they became what they did but at least they didn't become the basic enemy so why did moreau why didn't he turn into a lichen and why did he turn into a you know a rather sad <laughs> pathetic little fish man I don't know. Well, this is what I mean. Maybe the parasites can be artificially manipulated. I mean, Moreau says he he infected someone with a kadu and then injected them with wolf's blood, didn't it? Further enhance the sort of wolf-like qualities. And, you know, the kadu hasn't worked in Moreau clearly, but maybe Miranda kept him alive simply because his mutation was so drastically different. The thing I like about Moreau as well is he's he's completely useless. You know, he <laughs> he has no skills. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing when he's when he's experimenting on people with the kadu, but he just does it anyway out of blind loyalty to Miranda and an attempt to please her. You know, he spends his time hiding in the reservoir, watching romance films and eating cheese (laughs) and just, you know, just randomly experimenting on the villages with absolutely no clue what he's doing. And that's, that was something I kind of liked, you know, he's basically, he's got all this power, but he's, he's basically nothing more than a child trying to impress his mum. But there's actually a good, no, that's a good point. In this, I was laughing, but no, because that could have been fleshed out, you know, if there'd been more time and, and more. 
the thing is, GT, I don't think everything needs to be fleshed out. I mean, this is the thing. I get what you were saying. I, I don't mind a lack of information for some of the lords. I don't mind a lack of information for, for some things. Like, he's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. I don't I don't mind it. It's just a general consistency to the overall narrative that we, I think we're all having this overall problem with. I mean, more is always better, I guess, most of the time. Like, you, you can never complain about having more, but if, if there's, there's some things are lacking, like if there's a lack of information, it doesn't... To me, it's like, yeah, there's four different lords, and you're right. You, what you said before was probably true in that, like, because they spread themselves a bit too thin, there's a lack perhaps for some of them but that's okay if there was a tonal consistency to the to the upper level of stuff that was there and had enough explanation yeah to explain it that's it i mean you can have a lack of information but you just want tight stuff that for the little bit that is there so the only things that don't get any form of exhibition really are the Arias brothers much like what we've just been talking about and the way that the four lords reacted these particular brothers just had a particular type of reaction where they kind of went down the wolf path but because they were still strong brutish brothers they kind of became that version of themselves I, I, I didn't really need massive and more amount of explanations beyond that I just make that assumption based on the outcome of all the other experiments like I could be wrong that's just headcanon but it seems no, to no, fit it, that. It, it, it makes sense. But like the, the gargoyles, the Samak are explained, the the slave ladies are explained, the zombies um, are explained, Lady D is explained, the Dimitrescu daughters are explained. Whether, as a, whether there's a bit of consistency, but th- th- there's quite good... I, I always felt, you know, compare it to, say, Resident Evil 6, which doesn't have any explanation until you properly dig into what the C virus... Clearly the vi- virus has had so many variations because you just didn't know what you were going to get. Yeah. Like that, because it's just like, well, that's how the virus works. That's okay as well, because that's viruses in general. Everyone, like if you have a common cold, everyone gets slightly different symptoms or gets impacted heavily by certain things based on their physicality. So let's... I never really had too much issues with that. And, and a fundamental idea, I don't have any... The core concept of this, that everyone reacts differently is kind of interesting too. Like, I don't mind that either, but... Well, let's talk about Benevento and Donna. Her affinity to the Kadu and what she can do seems to mimic almost like... A, she has almost like a special relationship with those yellow flowers that kind of grow outside a house, which can cause hallucinations uh, in people. We see that Gardner's file is very... You know, it's really quite cool, I thought, as well, when he got mm. to go back and kind of almost visit his wife, I think, if I remember correctly. She can control these hallucinations, but then I think the files mentioned that she almost splits the Kadu between herself and Angie the doll. I had some a problem with this. You know, again how did she split the kadoo the way i read into that and you guys might see it differently is that essentially mentally she has and that way the hallucinations work people think that's the case because the way it's described when the villagers are talking about it it's almost as if she's talking through the doll which is very straightforward yeah. that she's using the doll as like a, a trauma vessel but realistically i think what we're actually seeing is just the hallucination of her splitting the kadoo between them as if they were two personalities but realistically it's just her so she's using much she's just kind of using multiple dolls as that, as that vehicle you're saying no 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 she's still just got the one doll i'm just meaning that she is continuing to use that extension of the doll but when you're in the hallucination form it seems like the kadoo is half split between the doll and her as if they're two entities but i Mm. don't think she physically split them i think she's just just like her personality is split between herself and the doll and she uses the doll to talk outwardly thus the same applies when and when you've got this hallucinogen added that the doll seems to be 
its own entity and it's confusing because i say this but then you've got the scene at the open church earlier on and she's walking around by herself and going you know giggling and waving at you and stuff so who knows they just wanted a creepy doll clearly that's that's really what the intent exactly what it amounts to um and the the hallucination angle is really weird as well because you know this game infers that you need these flowers you need to sort of breathe in the pollens or whatever to become victim of these hallucinations yet resident evil set seven already establishes that the mold gives you hallucinations because isn't that what like most of the games to newmont is as he's as ethan's going back through the guest house he's hallucinating all of you know mia attacking him again and yeah. tonally it's exactly the same as like the early beneviento stuff when you're working through walking through the graveyard to get to the actual house it's all presented in exactly the same way yet for some reason they've added this additional you know subplot that you need the flowers to see these hallucinations and i suppose in villages defense at that point we don't know ethan's like just pure mold but it's it's still quite disjointed you're suggesting there that if he was pure mold then he wouldn't have had the hallucinations because like you say yeah that's that's the thing that that jarred for me is i couldn't quite understand what the significance of the flowers were and why particularly it was why donna herself had such a particular ability with them it it, it didn't seem to be again any explanation as to anything about her prior life that that would have caused this relationship or as to why after being administered you know with the mold she then had this relationship with the flowers no the flower thing is explained the bit that i get from the flowers is that the grave she planted this particular flower that she obviously liked around her child i think it's a child's grave i'm guessing because of the age of the child and it just so happened that that flower had to happen this particular ability maybe she didn't realize when she planted it but she obviously once she realized cultivated this because it's the only area that those flowers exist is literally around that grave now the interesting thing about that part is whether or not the flowers themselves are the hallucinogen or it's something to do with the child's grave itself now that's a more interesting story to me but yeah it's donna's mutation she can secrete a pheromone yeah that's what it is which controls these plants that are infected by the mold and and that that's what brings on the hallucinations yeah so she can can secrete the pheromone to stimulate the plants which brings on these visions that seems quite a complicated thing in in terms but but like you said like sean says before when we already had that reason the narrative for those hallucinations we see them on the boat you know when we're seeing yeah but are they saying that this element of the mold is the cause of it in seven if you like is this part of the mold this is the origins of the hallucination aspect okay of the i don't know I'm, i'm just i'm just spitballing here is that what they're trying to suggest? Ah, you remember the hallucinations in Seven? This is what, yeah, this this is what caused it. But then, then to add to the question, like what you were saying, John, with the secretion, has she created an actual flower that creates that thing for her? Because obviously those flowers exist and they are glowing a certain yellowish colour and and then she's planted them around her child's grave. Is that, like, is that part correct? Have I established this no, I- the right way? I thought it was that the flowers had that ability to begin with, but then she had the ability to extenuate that and then spread that and control that, which made me think what it just seemed, again, a matter of convenience that there happened to be these flowers with that, you know, with that ability to begin. Yeah, the other way around is less convenient, more that she, like, to me, if she bred these flowers and cross-pollinated them with her own ability, that would more be less convenient. But I see what you're saying, GT. Those specific flowers contain the pollen that brings on the hallucinations, but she can stimulate the plants so long as they're infected by the mold, by this secreting of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, pheromones, some sort of signal-producing pheromone, which stimulates the plants to release this particular pollen, which brings on the hallucinations. And I'm assuming the pollen causes hallucinations because the plant is infected by the mold. 
again, it's, yeah, it's, it's all very vague. Vague. Uh, exactly the words I was about to use. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I didn't think about the fact that obviously having a mold connection would be interesting, but again, yeah, it comes back to what GT said, which is, again, we don't know how, but also the convenience of it. So can my theory work that the hallucination element you see in 7 with a Dolby mold, could that possibly po- be... Possibly, I mean... It- it, it, if it is explained as John's just said regarding that there's a connection to the mold in regards to the flowers and the hallucinogen and also obviously the controlling of it through Donna, then yes, probably it could. That it could be a byproduct of the mold because it has spores, because it has... Yes. Yeah, it, it, it is a possibility, but it's never confirmed. It's, it's just, an, an, again, another assumption or a vaguety of the, the whole thing. It's a nice bit of headcanon that may help with dating. This timeline's impossible in this game. It's one of the things I find really frustrating. I mean, if we're going back to the Four Lords, I think, like we said before, I think Alcina is the oldest one, likely born around the 1910s. Heisenberg also mentions he's been trapped under Miranda's leadership for decades. There's nothing about Moreau. And Donna appears to be the youngest because the gardener's diary file states that she received the gift of power and then planted these flowers next to Miss Claudia's grave. And I believe she died in 1996. So yep. it's got to be some time after that. So she's, you know, she's quite recent compared to the others. The span's like about 100, 100 or so years, but it's there's very little data, doesn't there? Yeah. And if you look at the, um, I think it's the experiment notes file where it talks about Alcina's implantation, we could do a nice little reference is the other subjects mentioned uh, part of the Beneviento and Moreau families as well. Um, I think it's Bernadette Benviento and Mahai Moreau who didn't take to the parasite and one of them died and one of them just became a lichen. So she's been experimenting on these four families for, for years. I think these four families are descendants of the original four founders of the village as well. I think that's what they were certainly going for. Let's talk about everyone's favourite electric magneto uh, yielding boss Heisenberg Sean, I'm going to let you lead with the, this one. The Frankenstein army Tetsu yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know one really likes the factory, but in terms of the actual, the kind of the storyline that's kind of going on, I, I found it re- a really fascinating element of the game. And Heisenberg, I found an interesting character. Uh, someone mentioned, would it have been more interesting if Heisenberg was stalking you throughout the factory, which I found, I thought, been quite a, uh, quite a cool concept. But in terms of what he does, again, we get such great explanation in the actual design of like the soldat and the, the jet soldats and Sturm and things like that. They almost don't need a lot of explanation because it's visually quite clear as to what they're trying to do. And yet they give it. You know, you get some great environmental storytelling with some of the x-rays and, and whatnot. And there's some cool logs and the tape recording of Heisenberg doing some experiments with the soldat. That's really cool. That's really good stuff. So I, I, I very much enjoyed and actually tolerated quite well the the stupidity if you like of you know jetpacks monsters coming at you where i got a bit funny was obviously with heisenberg himself now i think the official law on this is upon implantation of the do he developed an electric organ in his body answers on a postcard please becomes a magnetic coil yes it does. I mean, I say that. I mean, you know, just as I'm speaking it, I'm thinking, how different is that to the T and G virus? You know? I say that, Nick, but I don't remember Morpheus, you know, swinging boats around the fucking air and. Uh... No, no. <laughs> ah, the T. Ah, oh, great reference to T plus G virus. But yeah, we had that, didn't we, with the electrical properties of that? Yeah. But then thinking about it again, the albinoid 
was, I suppose, had electrical. I was going to say, I don't think people would have minded it so much if it was one or the other. If it was some mild electrical abilities to pick up and throw stuff, or it was him just tinkering and making these weird creations, but it's kind of like both is perhaps too much. Plus the he, fact that the factory section he's is... A full, he's a full-blown ex-person. He's, he's Magneto, isn't he? He basically commands the stage exactly the same as um, Magneto does. It's practically identical, isn't it? Where he's, he's yeah. throwing the knives into each of the Lord's posters on the wall. Yeah. Whoever developed Village is clearly a big Fassbender fan, given the <laughs> Alien Covenant lab at the end as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's neat though. I didn't hate the factory, Nick. I'll just, I'll just point out quickly. I actually quite like the tonal change of pace, and it just play, basically plays like Doom um, at that point. It's just a full-blown first-person shooter. <laughs> So I was on board with it. <laughs> it, was no, it was nice. But that is, that is a massive tonal change from the rest yeah, of the game. As we've said before, it tries to do it like what Resident Evil 6 did was it tried to promise it could do all these different avenues and it and it failed so terribly at like mm. giving you a survival horror section and a pure horror section and an action section and a pursuer section. And I actually think Village does it quite well. I actually, I, I appreciated the factory after, you know, the sort of shenanigans with Moreau and things like that. And I just like the fact that it did just go full blown. I, I don't like necessarily the enemies and I certainly don't like the Heisenberg boss fight. But I like the aesthetic and the combat and the pace and the flow of the factory. I, I, I felt it was I felt it was all right, actually. You didn't think it dragged on a little too long, though. First playthrough, it does. No, no, I don't think it did because I, I, I tend to play. I tend to play these games at a fairly fast pace, anyway. Even though I like try and soak in all the environments and everything like that, and I certainly take my time re- reading the files and that. When it comes to the combat, I am very much more. You know, anyone who's seen me streaming, it might very much more of a run and gun kind of person. That's one of the reasons why I struggle so much with like remake two is because you've got to take a more sort of laboured approach to how to disarm the zombies and things like that and that's why i struggled i don't fundamentally disagree with anything you said other than that probably because i just found there's a lot of too many corridors and too many windy rooms that are all very similar but i can see the doom comparison there or at least the old school doom anyway in terms of what Heisenberg was up to, though, he gives quite a lot of explanation. Well, he was obviously quite unhappy with his role as subordinate to Miranda and was making the soldats in order to raise an army against Mother Miranda, fully aware that she could crush him at a moment's notice. He was quite open to her power, should we say. So asked Ethan for help because obviously he was able to dispose of quite a few other BOWs along the way. So that that, that was quite an interesting subplot. I was going to say, I think the, most, the, the thing I find... Um the most frustrating about heisenberg is the fact that on his wall that he likes to throw the knives to and everything like that there's so much additional lore detail that you just don't get a chance to see and unless you've like essentially either data and texture or freeze frame the game at key points you don't even realize that like he's summoning the bsaa which he's you know scrawled in a big marker pen over one of the maps or something like that if you don't click on the x and you crouch and look up you can actually pretty much look at the whole board yeah, you need to you need to know beforehand. So as long as you don't click on the command button on the curtain itself, you can kind of duck to the gap to the side and peek in, and you can see the whole thing. Same thing as even like a photo of Chris isn't there and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's photos of Chris and the um his operatives. There's yeah thing about the BSAA. There's photos of all the lords all crossed out. There's oh, a big picture of Miranda on there. 
Yeah, this... going back to what you were saying, Nick. You know, Heisenberg's a really interesting angle that I wasn't expecting the game to pull. Actually, trying to strike an alliance. I don't know whether I'm frustrated or admirable of Ethan for sort of throwing it away because I tend to be more interested in what would have happened if he'd embraced Heisenberg's offer. Because it, it's not out of the realms of possibility. Because he was like talking about, oh, I'm, I don't give a shit about your family issues or like that. And it's like, hold on a minute, listen, got to say, clearly don't want Mother Miranda. You clearly want to stop her. Well, you know, Heisenberg's clearly more powerful than you. Why not, you know, even fake an alliance just to take her down? There's logic in what Heisenberg was suggesting. Heisenberg says he's going to use Rose to stop Miranda, but it, like, mm. in in what way does he actually mean by that? You know, that's one thing that is abundantly not clear. At least I didn't get any kind of concept as to what he means. My assumption is based on the information that we get later in the the end of the game when we see the adult Rose that she has abilities and considering as it's been pointed out, there's something on the on the flasks themselves that say if she's not provided with a certain thing she'll age quickly. That perhaps he was going to recombine her letter age and then influence her in the same to take down Miranda but it's a vague guess based on the circumstances. She says Miranda's scared of her so I actually think that's why she loses her powers really randomly at the end of the game it's something to do with Rose you know whether Rose could control the mold at that stage being an infant I don't know. Or is it yeah. is it that the Mega Megamyce provides her with the abilities like it transfers all its energy towards Rose? Yeah possibly yeah because she's meant to be the perfect version of Eveline, isn't she? So maybe the Megami seat at that moment, you know, left Miranda and transferred into Rose. I don't know. Again, it's just it's just not explained, and that's the, the frustrating thing with this whole bloody story. Heisenberg's plan, anyway. He was going to obviously use his metal army to go against Miranda and call in the BSAA. And I think he obviously told the BSAA about the location of the Megami seat as well. If you look at his little map, he's drawn all these handmade bombs right above the same site where the Megami seat is. Where Chris goes in, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, going back to the Rose thing, though, I, I, I get the feeling that this is an intended trilogy of games. I think 7, yeah. 8, and 9 are a, a, a trilogy. I definitely think they're going to pick up this Rose storyline much more, obviously, than they have with, say, the Revelations titles or anything like that, the way it ends. But no, I hope so. I'm all in favour of continued storylines. And, um, you know, go back to my original point, I, I still think this works quite well with Seven, and, and we'll, we'll come on to Seven in a minute, because that obviously opens up a whole new can of worms. Can I just ask a question, actually, that we haven't mentioned, that I, I it does get crazed in the game, but there's no answer provided, and I, I'm assuming I haven't missed anything, but there's the whole thing about how uh, during, just before the Mega My Seats scene with Chris, they have a conversation about who let Miranda know about Rose, and one of the team members says a mouldy little bird, but doesn't imply any more direct connotations as to who that actually is. Who let Miranda know about Ethan and Rose and Mia? I've seen people online suggest that it may have even been Chris in order to lure her out. But I, I think that's a bit of a... But again, people are making these kind of you know, grabbing for these these uh, explanations because, yeah, the, the game just isn't giving us any. I get that because people have raised the point that obviously the BSAA slash Chris moved Ethan, Mia and now Rose <laughs> to a town <laughs> that's very close. 
conveniently close to to yeah. where this village is, so I can see where that assumption might come from. I think she just found out about Rose via the connections, I think, because she'll obviously be fully aware what's happened in Dolby, and I think the reason Mia and Ethan had to go into hiding is because the connections are obviously looking for them. And it's just a massive convenience that the BSAA happened to move them, like, not that far away. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think, possibly. I, I think Chris has maybe done it on purpose to using them as bait. I think he says um, at the start of Chris's gameplay section, one of his soldiers says she's been doing recon in the village, and that's how they've found out what Miranda's plan is. And because she's a shapeshifter, I mean, I'm just speculating here, I could be barking up the wrong tree completely, but because she can mimic everyone and they can't pinpoint where she is, Chris has potentially moved Ethan and Mia very, very recently to this house in Eastern Europe. And he's obviously watching the house and waiting for Miranda to make make a move, which she mm. obviously does. Aside from a massive convenience, that's the only reason I can possibly think of as to why the BSAA would be that stupid. I mean, I love, I, I, I like that, but then it kind of it then jars as to why he then just. <laughs> you know shoots up the whole the, the entire <laughs> property when really all he had to do was just take ethan to one side and look i've got something yeah i've got good news and bad news but you know it's just oh, i mean we've not gone into that have we as to why chris, yet, no. you know to be fair if i was chris and i knew what miranda could do i'd probably do exactly what he did i don't think i'd go in there talking i would just shoot her the first chance i got you really have to stop worrying it's just finding you in louisiana the pregnancy, Chris moving us here, military training, it all happened so fast, you know? Well, at least we're all together. You, me, Rose. Now, everything's gonna Seriously, be- Seriously, think we can just forget about what happened in Louisiana? It happened so long ago. I just, I don't understand why you are so- <laughs> Mia, get down! Makes sense, but it's the bit afterwards where once he's been well, yes, he say, eliminated, be, but, yeah, but yeah. he can now actually tell Ethan what the deal is, but he just decides to be a dick. But of course, that's just because <laughs> game narrative, like that's like yeah. movie logic. You know, you just have to have it for conflict. I get it, but the problem I have with that is that at the end, when when the team calls Chris out on it, he kind of doesn't really have an excuse, as if the writers themselves didn't really <laughs> couldn't come up with a good reason you, you for it. You joke, Rob, but I actually totally think that's why that line's been put in. Absolutely. It's almost like they realise yeah. like narrative issue here. So let's just have one of his uh, teammates chastise him and then the fans will overlook yeah. that. We, I think it's a great little thing. We lampshaded it, so therefore it's yeah, just yeah. a good idea. Before we kind of leave the BOW element, there's a question I wanted to pose to us all. Do we see in this game evidence of the of pure mould in action or is everything affected with, with the Kadoo? I suppose the biggest question, 
Is Miranda infected with the Kadu, or is she purely infected with just the mould? No, surely the Kadu comes after it. The Kadu comes because of what Mother Miranda wants well, to do with the mould. The game implies as much too, Nick, so yeah. Yeah, Miranda's 100% mould. And as I said before, like that whole thing at the end when she dies and, and it seems to absorb her and you see basically another version of the Mycet with the more mouth kind of thing folding out yeah I, I would assume that's just that's 100 percent it's also worth just mentioning here at one point um we've talked about nematodes a couple of times with reference to the kadu this is actually something that's only featured in the japanese version of the game so if, if there's people confused as to exactly what we're talking about uh, nematodes are microscopic worms i believe john i'm right microscopic worms that um form yeah, like or something like that yeah worm like parasites that live in like soil and wet environments they feed off things like fungi and mold so it obviously ties in quite neatly but this is a reference that is totally omitted from the english version so it just must be said for clarification because we've used it a couple of times in reference to the kadu it's something that's added to the japanese version because that everything is written in english first as far as i'm aware for uh, all re engine titles so it's something that was added for Japanese release as opposed to ignored for uh, localization. That's a can of worms. Nick. It is a can of worms. Yeah, that's a can of round worms or nematode. <laughs> but going back to your point about pure mold being used, Nick, the yes. sort of storyboards at the end of the game show that before she created the Kadu parasite, Miranda is basically implanting the villagers with mold. And again, this is another link to Seven because it seems to give them, initially anyway, regenerative properties. Um, seems to heal them from this Spanish flu. Yes. And this is the whole reason why they come to view Miranda as a saint and she starts to refer to the Megamycete as the Black God and the villagers slowly turn away from their own religion and, and start worshipping her as this kind of deity. And, and that would all be really good if it wasn't just a complete rip-off of Resident Evil 4, like so much of this game say, is. Yeah, but at the same time, just that is, that is still a great narrative that would have been fantastic if it had unfolded during the game in Game Files. And and, and yes, we do get the kind of the same montage at the end of 4, you know, you get as the artwork in, in, in the Incubate guidebook, and it's fantastic. Uh, but we, you know, it's it's kind of just putting an extra layer onto a narrative that we already know. But but whereas in, well, in May, that, it completely that, serves as the explanation, but we only get it at the end. Yeah, I was going to say that's the big difference between four and this is that four kind of starts to give you that implication through the game somewhat, and then this, really ties it off at the, the, the end. But this doesn't give it at all. So what we're saying is that the much maligned RE4 has a better narrative than Village. No, uh, so no, no. To end on, no. Uh, no, I'm not going. I'm not going that far. I'm not going that far. When it explains the whole thing, like what I was saying before about you, you create a narrative through consistency over the tone, so you get hints of it, which you do. I mean, you get the murals on the wall and the pictures of Miranda and all this stuff. That's all there, but it doesn't give you any explanation. You have to fill so much of the gaps yourselves. Whereas the occasional more file that kind of hinted more towards what happened 100 years with the Spanish flu and what Miranda's position was and how she was a saviour to the to the village. Those things could have been put in there and for some reason they're not, there's not enough of it. So. Those storyboards though, don't they imply that yes, she, she cures people of Spanish flu? Don't they then turn into a like? Sometimes, yeah. Is there actually any difference between someone who's infected with pure mould or those no, I, I don't think it does. I think, as George was saying before, it's just a quicker vessel quicker, to yeah. implant. So it just makes the process easier, but it's no different. It's it's just a, a facsimile option, yeah, a could, faster option. Could it be though? Because this is what we do see in Village in the in the great scene with Elena and stuff. Is that the Kadu is spread 
as it is, just like a virus uh, with old uh, Leonardo's bitten, isn't he? And then transforms into a lichen. Um, I wonder if that's what the Kadoo does more so than perhaps mold. If uh, if you're attacked by someone with mold, would you then become infected? Who knows? Again, it's it's yeah. not explained. The, the only thing I lose eggs in its host. So maybe when 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 Leonardo's bitten, some of these eggs get transferred into him and hatch and subsequently grow into a kadoo parasite. I don't know. Mold spores, these worms, things. You know, maybe that transfers. Who knows? We we don't know. I mean, uh, the other implication that is brought up but doesn't really get explained is the fact that Miranda protects the villagers from these monsters, which implies that I mean, while she's creating them, she does try and keep the villagers isolated and because obviously she needs villagers to experiment on and she yeah. has to wait for villagers to procreate and create more villagers to have more test subjects so she can't have them all being killed. So she obviously does keep all this kind of in check as well and has done for 100 plus years. I think that's where the stronghold comes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah keep keeping them all in there, yeah. But occasionally, obviously, they get out and wreak havoc, it seems. But especially of late, she's basically abandoned them, but that's just because of Ethan's arrival and Rose's arrival. She said, I don't need to worry about that, but it becomes clear, but beyond that, yeah. So just thinking about it, um, going back to our preview podcast of Resident Village, we spoke about how awesome it would have been if we arrived in the village when everything was okay, um, and then all hell broke loose. We were quite close to that, but I think what we've kind of discussed this evening, there was a good opportunity to have seen total carnage. The frustrating thing is, Nick, I think a lot of that's on the cutting room floor. Yes. The first trailer does depict life in the village before the incident, so I think we were due to see all that in an earlier build. And For me personally, it's heartbreaking that a lot of this... Uh, if people go back and watch the original reveal trailer for Village, you will see an entire trailer full of villager sequences that are not in the final game, and a lot of it is life before the carnage, as you call it. I think what was unsettling for me, I think, with this part is you arrive and all hell has just broken loose. We've just missed it. We're, you know, that's where we're at. But there looked to have been, with the arrival of Urias, almost like an established hierarchy almost in place very quickly. And we know Urias wasn't in the stronghold or anything like that. He was just the village chief. Um, I think that's what it says in in the concept artwork. That was the plan. So he would have been attacked quite early, and then for whatever reason, as we discussed, he then mutated into you know Big Cheese, you know Mendez style, and then just almost took command, if you like, of the lichens, and the lichens you know listened to him or followed him or the bells or whatever caused it. It just seems that that was established quite quickly, and we and we missed that. That could be DLC. Who knows? Well, I got the impression he was infected some time ago, mm, and he was just yeah. I didn't think, think he was. I I didn't think he was recently, in fact. Okay, maybe, maybe. Same with Otto at the mill. I can't even remember what happened well, to Otto's it, mill. To the, the giant X-Men. But of course, there's more than one X-Men anyway, because there's another one when you go back, if you go back to the... Um, the grave, yes, yeah. The grave, yeah. So I think it's just, they just exist. They're just big X-Men because it's a enemy variant. And there's the one who's guarding the Mega My Seat as well. He's obviously been there a while because that's his job. Kind that's of, true. He's yeah. kind of entombed. He's almost semi-entombed into the wall at first. That would be arguably then quite good DLC. Right, well, I think that's a good good explanation or attempted explanation looking at the at the Kadoo mold within the village universe. We're now going to expand our horizons a bit. We've already spoken a bit about 
Brandon Bailey uh, saving the law once again or at least in theory so this will be a quick discussion before we get into Resident Evil 7 which I, I think a lot of people want us to discuss so a reminder for people Brandon Bailey was Marcus's chief student was he not and uh, one of the key scientists in, involved with the progenitor virus and up until uh, Village came out was you know a high level employee within Umbrella and helped Marcus with the with his progenitor investigations. In fact, he helped link in with Resident Evil 5 and the Lost in Nightmares files quite nicely all the other games and made 5 that pinnacle of, I think, storytelling in terms of, you know, connecting all the dots. And there he, as Sean alluded to earlier, he then suddenly appears bringing everything together. Or does he? John, how did you feel Brandon Bailey fitted in with this? Well, like most people, I was taken in by it at first. I thought, oh, that's brilliant, Link. But then when you think about it, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm pretty sure that if Capcom had announced prior to the release of Village that the leader of the Connections was a minor character from Background Files in a previous game, I'm pretty confident absolutely no one would have guessed Brandon Bailey. If you read the files from Five, Bailey isn't painted out to be this major rival to Spencer. He's just a student of James Marcus who spends 30 years at the African lab shipping out samples of progenitor to Umbrella's labs across the world. He loses all interest in his work when Marcus dies and describes his feelings as being completely indifferent to what happens with Raccoon City and the mansion and the African lab being shut down. There is absolutely nothing in there to suggest he wants to seek revenge by masterminding his own crime syndicate. You know, he writes his last journal entry in November 1998 where he actually says he believes it's too late to have anything resembling a life again. And yet by 2000, the connections are up and running, have established enough not only to have reached out to Miranda and gained her trust enough to convince her to hand over both samples of the mould and Eva's DNA, but they're also in league with the rival company, Albert Wesker, and receiving technical cooperation from HCF. You know, considering the lengths Spencer went to to have Progenitor and its source a secret, why didn't Bailey exploit it? For the connections. Why wasn't he performing experiments with the mold and progenitor? I mean, look at the efforts Wesker had to go through with Tricell to find the African site when Bailey, you know, his business partner in 2000, one has to assume, had access to it all along. One has to wonder why Bailey was retroactively chosen as leader of the connections when we know that as of 2006, he's dead, you know, ironically killed <laughs> off by Spencer to preserve the secret of progenitor. And even more ironically, in that same bastard file that has Ethan W in it, that fueled all those Ethan is. <laughs> Like obviously an umbrella researcher prior to seven yeah despite ignoring the large word dead written right next to his name that fucking file is haunting my dreams <laughs> the, the japanese version i do believe of one of brandon's files in uh, five though does it doesn't end on quite such a nonchalant note i do believe he in the japanese version uh feel free to correct me he does say something like now is perhaps the time to strike or something like that it might be worth verification on if you get wow. a chance to uh going on to that file i was going to say the thing about that file is that they, you can wreck on that file pretty easily you can say that it was a falsified file to draw attention away from his actual plan so that's yeah. not a non-issue that's that bit's a non-issue because you can change that he could just have filed a false file but yeah there is other bigger issues like the timeline connections or unless you, he didn't trust albert wesker but again you have to go then explain that and then the, the obvious one is the death thing is has to be overcome so, <laughs> which is pretty big 
I mean, John gives a really good, like, law articulate answer to it. I can't add anything other than it just so much of it doesn't work. It generally feels like Capcom just kind of just threw all the names in the Resident Evil series into a hat and literally just came up with Brandon Bailey. And and what's a shame, because, you know, for people like me that don't necessarily connect with the gameplay of Resident Evil 5, no one, no one can kind of discount the fantastic files and, and, and particularly their value to the narrative. And I, yeah, I, I mean, subject to any slight translation difference in the Japanese file that, that alludes to you know brandon bailey wanting some type of revenge or but like you said there's so much Romby points out as well there's so much more to it that it just it's completely nonsensical i don't know why they went with this name it's almost slightly insulting to the fans that they just felt you know we'll pull a, a kind of a retro feeling name from the past that had some connection to spencer and we'll just you know how look, look how clever are we it, it's, it's very cheap if you actually like you say you dig under the surface none of it makes any sense in the japanese he just says i think it's time to go or you know it might be time to move on it certainly doesn't allude to fucking forming a crime syndicate and going on a rampant revenge which, which yeah. i'm gonna be, i'm gonna be big with because it also doesn't not <laughs> But <laughs> six a.m. You're in a very good and forgiving mood. Bloody hell! I'm just saying, like that file part is not really the issue. The bigger issue is the dead part. That's <laughs> the file can be falsified. The file can be changed. The file, you know, the file reference can be made untrue. Like he was covering his tracks. That's a non-event. But there's the big issue with the connections, Wesker, and then the death thing. I think are bigger hurdles to potentially overcome when you start digging in. That is an issue. Are we expecting Brandon Bailey to turn? up in Resident Evil 9 or at least more mentions of him because as you, as Batman said he's dead in 2006 the same year I believe Blue Umbrella reformed so he faked right. his own death <laughs> is basically what we're implying with Blue Umbrella <laughs> Or he di- he actually did die, and their tech brought him back from the dead, and it's Albert Wesker all over again. Who knows? Everyone's assumption on Phoenix with the IX is correct. It just wasn't Wesker. It was Brandon Bailey all along. You know it. You know it. Chris is going to run into the Blue Umbrella headquarters, going to turn around, and it, go- it was I, Brandon Bailey, all along. If you actually check the options screen on Revelations 2, it actually spells out Brandon Bailey if you... Uh... <laughs> you go down it all <laughs> it was Bailey all along <laughs> i did see that post that people pointed out did, did you see the the uh option screen on seven i don't buy it for a moment it was, hilar- it was hilarious it was very funny it doesn't matter it wasn't probably planned but that is pretty funny you have to admit I think oh, it's incredible how much this community will reach and grab something wholeheartedly without thinking about it first, yeah. Let's talk about the connections then. So the, the, in the... Because a lot of this information, by the way, if you haven't picked it up, is in, in the Baker file document. Uh, they may not have read it if they didn't get the file because they had to pay money for it. It's shocking. Please, <laughs> please do not pay for it. Google it. Find it. I mean, DLC paid issues aside, the Baker file in itself is is really, really good, and it's something Capcom should do a lot more of in the future, I think. Can I bring up the elephant in the room about that file? Am I allowed to talk about this? That I mentioned as soon as I was like, what the fuck, with Ethan? Go on. My question is, if Ethan died in his mould and there's this connection, what does it mean for Zoe in her existence within the Baker family? And is she human? Is she mold? What's going on there? And what's the deal? Like, I'm super confused by this whole thing. Well, she was cured. Yeah, but then, yeah. The way I read it is, is 
the bakers were just infected with the mold. They weren't killed, they were infected. And one of the symptoms of mold infection is if, if you're subsequently killed after you're infected, you can regenerate to a certain extent. And certain so... individuals like Jack have more regenerative powers than others. So they could effectively be cured so long as the infection hasn't took them over completely. They could, in theory, be cured and become normal humans again. Whereas I think Ethan's unique because he was he was flat out killed and then Evelyn had to infect him with mold and resurrect him as a molded, essentially. Albeit an extremely unique one because he retains his human form. But you again, might want to cut gameplay this, reasons. I understand that point. That that point's fine. But if if the point of Ethan being killed, we presume, is when Jack punches him out. I know it's a minor point. I don't, I'm not going to use this that we can sort of see from Ethan's point of view as he's being dragged away. But if we take it that, okay, he was killed then when he's punched out. But wasn't Ethan infected by Mia prior to that in his interaction with Mia? We don't know. It's never made clear when Ethan's infected. We don't know. If he was infected and killed, that would make him no different to any other character yeah. in Seven. Therefore, yeah. he would not be special. So it had to be that he wasn't infected during that interaction with Mia. Um, until until after he was killed, yeah. So uh, that thing with with when Zoe's sewing his arm back we, on. We we don't we don't see it. That's the thing. We that's exactly what I was about to say. GT. So what happens is you've got that the arm things already happened during the fight with Mia and then when you wake up in the chair at the mm. table it's reattached so it, the implication is he either Jack killed him or basically Jack knocking him out he bled out and died yeah and as he was being dragged back to the main house and then when you wake up technically Ethan is dead and then when at what point was his arm reattached by Zoe probably during that time that he's passed out because when you wake up at the dinner yeah. table the arm's reattached but then Zoe didn't need to reattach the arm because it, if she was completely dead and then resurrected as moulded, why did she? Wouldn't his arm have uh, reanimated without Zoe needing to reattach it? His corpse was still attached, wasn't it? Minus the severed arm. And, and was... you get that implication from the fact that when Lady D cuts his yeah. arm off, it starts to get wither, basically. So. And the files in Seven make a point that even though you've got regenerative abilities when you're infected it says severed limbs can reattach so when she puts ethan's hand back to his arm it'll reattach it's not the same as he can't grow new limbs like in village for example the lichen bites off his fingers at the start of the game his fingers never grow back but if he got his fingers and and tried to reattach them they would have reattached does that make sense yeah 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 thank you it's the same with with ethan's leg if you get that scene with with Jack and the... so there's two points I want to make there's always been that assumption and George kind of alludes to that Ethan was infected quite early on either and you can you can always pick and choose can't you either as soon as he enters into the guardhouse I always had him down as being infected when he bumps into Andre's head I think in the water I thought that was the point or some people thought you know when he first encountered Mia again all perfectly viable it didn't matter now it seemingly does matter because as John says if he was infected then killed then he's no different to you know the other characters but he is clearly special so i think what we have to assume now is at no point was he infected with the mold until jack killed him and evelyn went oh shit i need him as my new daddy and she infected him and lo and behold he uh, he actually came back as effectively a superhuman give or take so the suspension of disbelief therefore lies with the fact that he was able to cope quite miraculously with having his 
hand pinned up against the wall crucified basically and then uh, chainsawed off the problem i have here is that we're discussing the difference and but at the end of the day it doesn't for me have a particularly significant bearing on on the narrative because when evie says to ethan at the end oh didn't you wonder why you know you were surviving we already knew well in our minds we thought we knew why he was surviving these injuries is because he was infected with the mold we just you know the only difference effectively is the degree of infection you know and the point of infection but it's actual you know the the, the gravitas of that revelation wasn't as much as it could have been you know it could have been a real sixth sense moment you know you know you were a ghost all along but actually it wasn't really a, a stunning revelation what evie was saying to ethan because yeah he was special but that specialness didn't really add anything to the narrative because like i said we weren't you know it wasn't a jaw-dropping moment then because well you know lady d had already impaled us with her claws and i kind of thought well why is he still living oh yeah he's living because he's infected with the mold you know he's just got no regenerative power so i don't know if you guys were feeling that but it was just it was a degree of infection and didn't really have that big you know powerful moment that it could have that sixth cent moment that it could have been well yeah i i kind of see where you're going from that kind of does make sense i mean you you assume that because of what happened to him in seven he had some abilities granted yeah. to him the death thing was perhaps the extreme end of that i wasn't expecting that but yeah it didn't have the impact because of that reason yeah, i can see what you're saying there just doesn't seem any point to it you know why not just have him as a human and have him save his daughter and then die as a human just didn't really work for me to be honest I guess the point that they're trying to make across is obviously to explain more about Rose between the two parents, because if Mia has been cured, as the narrative assumption is based off the events of Seven, then the only way that the baby could end up being the specimen is if one of the parents was part mold. So they had to explain it somehow, so I guess that makes sense. There's a hint earlier in the game, which most people miss, which is I didn't see it either until replaying a couple of times, but which is when Ethan's hand gets dropped off. If you examine the um, hand, you can actually see mold inside the limb itself. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's also, I think, it obviously used as a vehicle to explain away the sheer amount of brutality um, Capcom liked to inflict upon our, our guy Ethan and it creates incredibly strange conundrum with what they try to do with the character of Ethan and I think it actually works against the um, idea of the character and the idea of the character was as they've spoken about in Resident Evil 7 was that they wanted to kind of make Ethan an avatar of the player which is why you never see his face and as, as some people like to point out his characterization in 7 is not quite as in-depth as you would maybe expect from this series and that's fine the problem is if they wanted Ethan to be an avatar of the player, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of this character. They create a world where he's maimed and brutalized so much that I feel personally you can't empathize with him in that kind of level. You can obviously empathize with him with regards to a father looking for a child. That's fine. But I don't think many of us have been uh, impaled through the hand and strung up, you know, into the ceiling of a large room. Um, yeah, so and had that's, to that's really forcibly tear our hands through the hooks and things. Uh, it's an interesting conundrum they've created with this character, to be honest. But then also, like like you say, they kind of try to imbue him with more character, and, and, and it almost feels like, yeah, that's very much what he was meant to be in 7, an avatar for the player. But it, it doesn't feel like that at all in 8. 
And again, it just feels like they're almost confusing themselves, Capcom. They're not quite sure what they're wanting to do and they're kind of finding themselves down a rabbit hole. I mean, I find this again with the, you know, the, the, the way that they've included the merchant into this narrative, but they've wanted to connect it a bit more. So we get the Duke. And you say that line before where Capcom weren't quite sure about, you know, Chris's motivations, almost calling themselves out. I felt they were calling themselves out again with the Duke when he says himself, well, I'm not, you know, Ethan asked him, who are you? And oh, I'm not quite sure. I don't think Capcom themselves know. I actually liked it when the merchant, he was just mysterious enough and, and kind of went with the aesthetic of four so that he didn't jar when he was stood with that mysterious blue flame just to one side outside of, you know, a save room cabin. And he didn't, he didn't impede on the narrative enough for me, but the Duke, so I won't go on a, on, a, on a Duke criticism here, but just very quickly, I felt that, again, with another example of it just wasn't quite right for the game. You know, you, a jolly jester in a save room doesn't really do it. And at the end, when he says, well, I'm not quite sure myself. He was going to be the fifth Lord, wasn't he, at some point? Yeah, he was, yeah. Um, I will say that despite all the criticisms we've pulled at Ethan not being a human as such and being, you know, a living moulded, I will say, on a, on a personal point of view, and it's just me, I'm, I'm not speaking for you guys, for all the problems problems that that idea and narrative beat creates i do love the sequence with ethan and evelyn i think it's one of my favorite pieces in the series in terms of how it's directed presented acted uh you know the music i think is phenomenal in that moment where he's on like the you know the snowy wilderness and evelyn's before him i, I think that and you see the flashbacks to seven and everything i, I actually think todd uh God, i forget his surname who plays ethan does great work in this and i and i love that sequence so much but i'm fully aware of all the problems that ethan being a molded i say in inverted commas uh creates with the narrative you're dead dead i mean miranda she no i still have to save rose wrong it wasn't miranda you were always dead. What are you saying? I can still... See? Miranda didn't kill you. You mean you didn't think it was weird? No matter how much you got hurt? Remember? Messing with my head. You shouldn't be walking. Screw <laughs> you! I do think the game really does make Seven as a game far more important. And for that, I feel it has dragged Seven very much into the main line, which was a criticism of Seven, even even after the DLC. But I think it does that perfectly fine without this Ethan nonsense. Because if you go on any message boards now, it, it now says, well, if Ethan could do this in Village, what does this mean in Resident Evil 7? What does this mean in Resident Evil 7? You know, it, it causes all these unnecessary problems, whereas... 
the good stuff, i.e. the stuff with Miranda and the connections, to the point where they've they've taken stock photos of Evelyn's being experimented on in Resident Evil 7 and then superimposed Miranda's face on top of it. You know, that stuff is excellent. And that's like proper old school Resident Evil. And I just wish they'd done more of that because that's a brilliant way of, of making the story of Resident Evil 7 more important and better rather than this whole Ethan thing, which doesn't work. And I mean, I, I wouldn't be so critical about it, but I just, I can't, having played the game several times now, I can't understand the point of it. There's no payoff to him being this revelation that he's been dead for three years. And that's no. my biggest criticism with it. There's just, there's no point to it. There's so many questions that come as a result of it. It's like, you know, you, you're under the impression that Mia has had to undergo many tests to sort of validate whether she's still uh, infected with the mold or not. Rose has obviously had a number of tests as well to make sure she's okay. And you're telling me that no one has done any kind of survey on Ethan to see how he's doing? You know, would this not have been abundantly clear? But me and you. But how does she know? (laughs) She knew he was special. Like, okay, is he okay? Yeah, unless everyone who was infected with the mold in Seven knew Ethan was dead. And that's the secret no, she's kept since Seven, yeah. But Possible. then you'd think Zoe would potentially know. That's exactly what I was about to say. Zoe would then know, and that would be the implication in her file too, but of course they weren't going to put that in the file in case you read it before you played the game. But of course we're giving no explanation, are we, as to when and how Mia found this out, and how she found it out in a way that didn't involve Ethan himself also finding out. Well, there's lots of little things like that we don't know. Like, also, how long Miranda was in place of Mia in the house, other than a a little while because of Ethan's comments and his own little comment about Mia's snappiness. I always found it interesting, I've said to you before as well, when you first play the game, the game almost (coughs) suggests that Ethan gets reinfected with this mold. There's prolonged looks um, in that first cabin of him looking at his hand, blood, he's covered in blood. It's really... No, I think... I, no, I think that's just because he wasn't expecting blood and there was a blood trail and he's like, what the hell? I don't think that's the reason. If, any, if anything, it would be more the, the lichen bite that would have made more sense. That Yeah, that, yeah, as I said, the, the blood, the lichen bite, and then the bugs under his skin as well. I thought that's where they were going as a as a kind of, oh, this is the explanation as to why he's going to survive the inevitable. But they, they could mauling. be read hearings for that for that purpose, knowing that later on they knew narratively that he was always going to have been dead in the first place. So for you as a player, yes, that could be all. You're not alone there, Nick, because Chris thought Ethan was potentially reinfected by Miranda. That's why he basically abducts him as well at the start of the game. That would have made more sense as to why Chris didn't say anything, but they don't explain that. Like, that would make 100% more <laughs> sense why he doesn't trust Ethan with the information. True. And th- then also when Mia says, oh, no, he's special, why does it make it? Why does it make any difference what, 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 in terms of what she's trying to say to Chris about it? I think Chris is just like, oh, he's dead. We're just going to leave him. And then she's trying to say, well, no, no, he's he's already dead, so he can't die. He'll come back to life. <laughs> but she didn't know he had his heart ripped out. Yeah, which I'm assuming's obviously bought him extra time, but he was always going to die from that moment on. Yes, that was a Mortal Kombat fatality. I think. But then maybe he's not. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> he's hovering by this grave. Oh, no. <laughs> that netherworld scene with Evie, I think one of you guys actually mentioned to me in the chat that this was kind of just a, a you know, 
symbolic of where Ethan's mental state was at the time, almost explaining to him what he was going through. But are you saying that Miranda pulling out his heart was a fatal injury to that that moulded reincarnation? Absolutely. It's one of those things that I think if you'd reinserted the heart back into his chest, it would have healed. And, uh, you know, the same way as like legs and feet reattach and stuff. But I think it's the only thing that's... And I I do like this from a narrative point of view. The only thing that keeps him going is the quest at this point, you know, the... And then that's why, and it's one of, again, it's one of a moment I love, and I and I really do think the character of Ethan's done well in this regard. The moment Miranda's dead and he's finally got Rose back in his hands, he just drops to his knees and he's he's done, he's finished. I, I really like that. I th- I think that some of the imagery is wonderful in that yeah. moment. It's a borrowed time. I agree, but I just think if he'd suffered fatal injuries as a regular human, it would have worked just as well. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Yeah, if it'd just been like a, a abdominal stab or something. Well, they could they also could have said that as a leftover of his old infection seven, he has minor powers and that would probably be enough to i mean there's rooted truths in that you know when someone says that the that you know someone's trapped under a car and all of a sudden someone just finds the strength to lift the car enough to get the person out from underneath it or something you know there's, oh that's, that's a proper in, thing yeah and i think it's that same mentality mm-hmm. thing that the, the mental fortitude can sometimes overcome some extreme situations um, as far as we know, there is no planned uh, official guide coming out for Village yet, which may f- yet fill in some blanks. We could get some DLC with regards to that, um, so keep eyes open and we'll obviously keep people updated. The other big element of Village, especially with Chris, is in relation to the BSAA and their sudden defection. Not a sudden defection, but their use of biological soldiers. I'm sorry. <laughs> Captain... You need to see this. BSAA didn't send soldiers. This is a bioweapon. What the hell were they thinking? Orders, Captain. Pick up the rest of the squad. Plot a course for BSAA Europe HQ. Someone's got to pay. One of the big twists at the end of Village is that when, uh, I think it's Tundra, I can't remember, one of the Foxhound squad, they capture one of the soldiers at the end of Foxhound. Foxhound! (laughs) Wolfhound! Welcome to the Metal Gear Solid podcast. (laughs) Wrong franchise, wrong (laughs) franchise. To be fair, I did did have that mental image in my head when they they did say Wolfhound the first time. (laughs) Yes, anyway. it's like we're gonna have code names like something snake and. <laughs> but yeah, the the reveal is that BSAA have been sending in biological soldiers or enhanced uh, humans, <sighs> um, which is really interesting because <sighs> it took a lot of people by surprise. But if you were familiar with uh, Umbrella Corps, and I think we're all now very much regretting not putting it in our essential list. <laughs> 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 it would not have come as a surprise at all, would it, Batman? Well, I think it's it's interesting, and not so much the genetic soldiers, but I think the way the BSAA is suddenly described as a rotten and ruined organisation, I think is, is very interesting, because it's a very dramatic twist, and the lack of Blue Umbrella in this game is very telling, I think. Chris has been disillusioned with the BSAA ever since the Dulvi incident, according to the Baker file, largely thanks to the botched mission to capture Eveline 
in October 2014 when the connections were transferring her from their base in Munich to Central America. Although we don't know the specifics, the BSAA's failure during that operation is essentially what leads to the whole Dulvey incident, and it's probably fair to say that Chris's disillusionment probably also extends to the BSAA's working relationship with Blue Umbrella. Now, to give a bit of background, as Umbrella were reformed, the UN imposed a number of conditions they had a moral obligation to dissolve units like the USS and the UBCS because as a private organisation they're banned from having their own in-house paramilitary forces and yet despite this the UN still expected them to be able to provide on-site support to any biohazard site anywhere in the world within 24 hours but this kind of sanction naturally puts Umbrella in practically an impossible position when you think about it. But when you take into consideration the incidents the original Umbrella were responsible for, their reformation would never have been allowed without such restrictions and precautions in place. Blue Umbrella complained to the UN about this very issue and spoke of humanitarian considerations being taken into account when expected to send their own employees to dangerous field sites unarmed. And the UN's answer to this was to provide armed support via the BSAA. And this results in the formation of the unit we see at the end of Resident Evil 7. BSAA elite operatives using umbrella-made weapons and equipment. So in terms of village and the BSAA now being described as a corrupt organisation, what does this mean? First of all, Umbrella and the BSAA are clearly still working together as of the events of village. Chris's team have medi-injectors stamped with the blue umbrella logo and the create ammo supply drops are another umbrella idea detailed in the Tokyo Maru books. Politically speaking the United Nations needed the cooperation of umbrella. UN forces had yet to establish the means to counter the growing complexity of BOWs and was subject to severe criticism from other countries. Um, other things as well like the balloon in operating costs of the BSAA and other organisations were also attracting criticism and the fact that umbrella offered to pay the costs and provide the technology made sense. So it was quite unprecedented really that a United Nations subordinate organisation was stationed in the hands of one company and since then Umbrella has devoted itself to expanding the power of the unit. So on paper it sounds like a proper honeymoon relationship but something seems to have gone wrong somewhere. And I think that during the time since Seven and Village the BSAA have become more reliant on Blue Umbrella and the tech and the anti-BOW weapons and the finance they provide. So reliant in fact that I think Blue Umbrella have started to influence policy. You know the BSAA were already under severe criticism from the UN member nations for failing to develop promised anti-BOW countermeasures following incidents like Langshang and um, New York in Vendetta and coupled with that their working relationship with Umbrella was originally a secret until uh, Blue Umbrella were named as an official investor in the BSAA submitted to a public hearing at a British Parliament and this was widely reported in global media and again contributed to the public becoming mistrustful of the BSAA and a lot of people were questioning the true nature of this relationship between the two of them so I think it kind of parallels what happens in Resident Evil 5 if you think of Tricell manipulating the the BSAA during the events of what happened in, in Kajuju. You know, you had Exceller as a GPC board member and Tricell as an investor. They had a great deal of influence over what happened to the BSAA during that mission in Kajuju. And I think the same is now happening with Blue Umbrella. You know, if you think about it, if Umbrella really want to stand at the top of the world again, then the BSAA would be their only major obstacle. So weakening them from within would be the logical step to take. And if you think about back to the events of games like Resident Evil 5, 6 and even Vendetta, you know, the idea of the BSAA using bioweapons as cleaners would be unthinkable. These genetically enhanced soldiers 
that have been deployed to the village are almost certainly a Blue Umbrella creation, yet they're wearing BSAA patches on the uniforms. You know, if this revelation was made public in the media, again the consequences would be disastrous for the BSAA. An umbrella, because they work behind the scenes of all of this, would not be implicated at all. You know, case in point is the Dulvey incident itself. The unit was made up of uh, umbrella-made equipment that were flying around in umbrella helicopters with, with the logo on and boats with the umbrella logo on. Yet according to the Baker report, the BSAA have been solely blamed for everything that happened and Blue Umbrella are not even mentioned. You know, even Chris, an original Eleven founding member, has no knowledge of these bioengineered cleanup teams and also seems to have been sidelined to the point where he's basically had to go rogue from the BSAA. And this again indicates that the top brass of the BSAA are being manipulated by Blue Umbrella. So hopefully the reason Umbrella have been not mentioned in Village at all is because the purposefully saving it all for a big BSAA versus Blue Umbrella versus the Connections showdown for the next game and you know such a scenario if you think about it would be a perfect swan song for all the classic characters. And indeed like Blue Umbrella's only reference in Village is making uh, life-saving med injectors so how good does that look to the public eye? Exactly yeah so I think it's all it's all quite cleverly done I mean again I'm speculating none of this is it's all based on what the information given in the Tokyo Maru books but you know it, it seems a logical direction for them to go down I just want I just want to say uh, that was fantastic thank you It was fantastic yeah. I mean it's such I mean we, it's ridiculous that Capcom you know shouldn't have to rely on someone with John's ability to break it all down that was wonderful but it's it's frustrating isn't it you know as as fans a, a series that resonates so much with such a large community it should be more accessible that information should, should be a lot more accessible i mean, yeah, I, I mean I, let's, let's break down the numbers i mean like if because most of that information comes from the tokyo maru books that came with bb guns of like the uh Thor's hammer, is it, and um, mm. the Albert model? So, how, like, if you if you're talking like, you know, we joke about the Baker incident being locked behind a paywall, but this is this is ten times worse because these guns are literally what three to five hundred pounds in like English money. Yeah, but hopefully Capcom are learning the lesson because information like the Baker report at one point would have all been hidden away in a Japanese guidebook, yes. and for once, uh, for once, they've yeah. actually included it in the game and putting things like the concept artwork. Yeah, it's worth saying that the concept art and this you know like you've already mentioned nick um a little while ago that there's no like behind the scenes book or concept art book but really like for the first time in this series all the the uh, notations and everything that the concept art gets in game is like an, a concept art book equivalent in this case isn't it it just goes to show as well how important all this behind the scenes stuff is because playing the game i mean why is chris so pissed off against the bsa it's never explained one of my favorite images in probably the whole series because it looks so beautiful is when Chris and his team are overlooking the village at nightfall under the full moon and you can see it on fire and you can see the battles going on and he zooms in on the BSAA who are deploying soldiers into the village and he's like oh fucking BSAA they've gone too far this time and it's like well what the fuck do you mean you know they're the good guys the game doesn't explain at all what's going on you have to unlock the concept art and scroll through it all and it says oh yeah by the way the BSAA are now a corrupt organization you start getting hints of that by the end when, when obviously the reveal during the last cutscene with Chris Chris with the genetically modified soldier, but do you go, okay, so something weird's definitely going on, but yeah, it doesn't explain anything. I did like the BOW soldiers being almost like a, an advancement of the cleaners you see in Survivor. It's that same sort of concept, isn't it, of having these disposable 
members able to go into these areas, sort it out, and then leave. Yeah, and yet if they get found out, they're wearing BSEA uniforms, they're not wearing umbrella uniforms, which I think is really, you know, really clever, because it'll get the BSA criticised for using such things. An umbrella, who are basically developing bioweapons again, can say, well, no, we're using it to uh, deter bioterrorism, we're using these beings as soldiers to kill bioweapons. So they get away with it scot-free. It is good, though, that, again, this goes back to what I personally enjoyed the, the storyline a lot more is that we are getting a recurring villain if you like in the sense of blue umbrella and i do wonder if this is capcom's attempt to remedy the fact that we never got what arguably we were promised uh by the end of resident evil 2 3 and code veronica with that kind of umbrella takedown and i'm i'm not including umbrella's end at all in that i just wonder if this is their attempt to go right we'll remedy this we'll build it up but this time we're going to make it bigger and better. We're going to have the goodies against the baddies against the other baddies, and we're just going to go hell to leather. 2021, I'll never forget it. <laughs> and suddenly the BSAA stock prices crashed. Oh, no, no, we can't go <laughs> through all, it again. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, the BSAA was finished. You've got the connections as well, so you've now got three groups. Connections, Blue Umbrella, and the BSAA which all need resolving. One of the most frustrating aspects of the narrative is obviously we've excitedly spoken about a number of times, you know, the big HCF reveal in Resident Evil 7. And uh, we're looking forward to that being elaborated further. Oh, yeah, it's not. (laughs) Well, well, it is in in indirect ways that we got more information about the connections. You know, they clearly haven't forgotten about that. They're not a throwaway like the family were. So I think we could take some solace from that. I actually think they're going to tie Ada Wong into the connections because she was supposed to be in this game spying on the village. So that could be a hint that she was at some point or is at the moment working for the connections. With all these additional lore elements, you know, taking the HCF reference in 7 into consideration, John, has your opinion of HCF changed at all or do you have any clearer idea who they are? I don't really think they've ever been properly developed, have they? I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see them again. I mean, I was as surprised as anyone when we got that reference in 7. As much as we all hoped otherwise, I think it was only ever meant to be a nice homage-stroke Easter egg. I don't think it was meant to be this big plot hint that they were going to come back in a big way. They needed an organisation for that time period, and they thought, oh, do you know what? HCF, the fans will love that. But because we were all desperate for information on them, we all hoped that this was going to set the scene for the big comeback. The fans will love that seems to be like their approach with all the little references and the Spencer file and the Brandon Bailey thing doesn't it and you know in in some ways like trying to appease a fan base like this is sometimes the worst way you can tell a story i feel yeah no but it it feels as superficial as that it's just oh the fans will love this but without actually really Mm. thinking it through as to how they're going to construct that into a narrative and i think as fans we wouldn't want to be patronized we would rather play you know an engaging narrative that makes sense logically and expands the the series forwards that doesn't have any back references um, or if you're going to have them, yeah, have them that are intelligent and make sense. I'm ashamed to admit that it works because, like, you know, if anyone could have seen the look on my face when I was reading the Baker report and got to the, you know, the, the now legendary page 41, the first thing I did was literally just like, drop, my jaw just dropped. I couldn't believe it, you know, that they've, that they've seemingly woven all this narrative together again. And I thought, absolute genius. But unlike 
the sort of mind-blowing revelations of Resident Evil 5 files, this doesn't hold water to any kind of level at all, I don't think. I think they've got to be careful. I know what you're saying there, George. But then, you know, if, if they don't put any lore into it, then it just becomes Resident Evil 4 again. And, and that wasn't particularly exciting for the purposes it, of that game. Whereas the Village has made a concerted effort. You can see that they've wanted to tie Resident Evil 7 in much more to the mainline series. And I think they've done that. I think they've achieved it. But... Question I have to ask you, Nick is have they done these references as a knee-jerk reaction to the hardcore fan base's criticism of Seven for not being linked enough? I, you get the feeling that it's gone down that fashion. I do wonder if they were somewhat t- the aesthetic of Village in the sense that they wanted to have this kind of gothic, medieval-type vibe with the vampires, and, and they thought, oh, this would be a good opportunity to tie in a bit with, with the origins of Umbrella. And I wonder if it's just been put in. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, they wanted they wanted that feeling of something quite old. But as you said, with retroactive storytelling, it can become quite problematic in, in how it's executed. I personally don't think it's done too bad. I agree with the comment about Ethan's death not being particularly helpful. I don't think it changes anything too much other than it being a slightly pointless retcon, but then so was Sergei. I actually think the in-game storyline, this is, you know, for my original review, the in-game storyline of what Ethan goes through, what you play as, should I say, is still the best in-game storyline since 5. Whether all the surrounding lore matches it is a different question, and I think we've all been very... I'd say critical. I think we've been very, we've cast a very critical eye um, because obviously we are an in-depth law podcast, so we want to examine that in minutia detail. But I, th- I th- you know, and I don't want to take away the impression that we didn't enjoy the game. I think all of us enjoyed it. We've all put it quite high in terms of um, our ratings. I just think we cast an eye because people want to know, you know, how it does tie in with everything else, uh, not just at face value, but at an in-depth level. Um, I just want to quickly say, I think the whole thing with the Umbrella logo and its origins was fine, but I just thought it was a bit cheeky by Capcom to build it up so much in the trailers. I totally agree, yeah. You know, it turned out to be nothing but a small footnote. And just to touch on what you said, Sean, I actually think all the connections to previous games outside of Seven don't come across as natural. They all feel tacked on and done as if they were done to appease older fans who would be looking for such things you know none of them feel particularly necessary and they do cause plot issues when viewed from the perspective of the games they are referencing yeah what's interesting is i made this point but and i was quite rightly told when it's maybe piped down a little bit with the book with the you know that we found in louis you know in dolby that was written by um what's you know the the, the abyss the o'brien book clive o'brien yeah, the Clive O'Brien book. But then, you know, like like you say, John, it, it didn't actually have overreaching implications for the narrative. And it was even pointed out that he said that he was actually going to go off and write a book, I think. But it felt a little bit cheap. And even me with George Trevor, no, I quite, I didn't quite like, you know, the way that the George Trevor book suddenly was just kind of, it did feel shoehorned in. But they don't have overreaching effects on the narrative. But yeah, these ones do. Innate, they really do. I, I mean, this was always something I felt about the um, Alyssa Ashcroft report. <clears throat> as excited as I I was to have like an outbreak confirmation like that. What the fuck was she doing in Dolby? <laughs> of all the places in the world that she could end up, whether there's another bio terror, you know, bio attack or whatever. You know, why? Why of all the the lovely landmarks of the entire world, why would the Bakers have an Arkley painting? Yes, in yes. in their in their hallway, and it's and and you know, Village does this tenfold 
with its law references, it, you know, and all it exists to do is make the world feel really, really small. I kind of have a, a double-edged sword to that because obviously you have to have these connections and references, but then, yeah, but narratively, most media does this. It becomes a universe that's infinitely sm- much smaller than what it expects. Oh, you know, like it's the Star Wars effect, you know, like, you know, obviously everyone's connected to someone else no matter how big the galaxy actually is. It's just the way media works. So um, I just have to accept that so I don't have too much of a problem, especially when it's just like Easter egg knots, you know, like all of a sudden here's George Trevor having a book about castles in Europe. Well, yeah, okay, thematically it fits to the style of village and it's a nice nod to a character related to the original game. Cool, I'm okay with that. They have a painting in the hallway of Arclay. Okay, that's weird, but all right, it's not groundbreakingly difficult to deal with well the joe kendo book was really good though because i can imagine him being some sort of connection to the bsaa and like chris goes oh here's a book you might like i, I did like that I, I thought it was cool yeah i mean homages are not too bad it's an easter eggs it's just when we overthink them it's like you know i'm sure everyone chuckled when heisenberg called chris that boulder punching arsehole oh. You know, that's just a funny little in-joke, but it's not. I've seen people like, oh, well, that must mean Heisenberg had spies in the West African branch of the BSEA <laughs> oh, no. and all this. And it's like, oh, God almighty. That's the problem, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> this is the same stuff that created debates around what Claire says in Revelations 2 and the relevance to that in regards to situations in Code Veronica and how her mindset is now and blah, 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 blah. It's just like, it's just an Easter egg, people. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. They just thought it was. How Claire know about the Jill sandwich joke when she wasn't in the Spencer Mansion? Imagine. It's the whole debacle with Claire and Steve Burnside, isn't it? She's referencing a line he said in Code Veronica. It doesn't mean her personality has changed and she suddenly thinks guns are more reliable than people. We just read into these things far too much. Which is ironic because I know we've been sitting here for the last few hours, probably (laughs) reading far too much into all this stuff. But, you know, that's what we're here for, for this purpose, to be fair. And I do want to point out. I know I've been very critical tonight, but I must I do want to point out that I think Village is a, is an excellent Resident Evil game and I really do like it a lot. I just have few too many problems with its story. But as a Resident Evil game, I think it's absolutely fantastic and a lot of effort has clearly been put into it. And I, I enjoyed think... the return to some of the puzzles. I I, I oh, yes. know, I'm not quite I've seen people complain that that they're not particularly difficult, but come on, put them up against the things if you can even call them puzzles in four, five and six. And it was I, I really welcome return. I love just the you know, a little reference in a painting to the bells and you have to look around. And I, I, th- I thought they were great. Even say the puzzles in 7GT, to be honest, because the shadow puzzles yes. aren't really much of anything. Oh. And you get a hilarious puzzle in Mia's section where you have to rotate some some uh, some pictures, and it's just it's, it's just not even a puzzle, really. It's just, you know, a colour match more than anything. There's still moments like that here with the switch puzzle for the dam. It's yeah. not really a puzzle. It's of the puzzle, isn't it? Well, we def- the- it was a step in the right direction. I, would, I think we would do it. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. I'm with you guys. I mean, I enjoyed the experience of the game, and I've played it. I finished it 100% on the PlayStation 5 and I went back and tried it again, the PlayStation 4 version. And I really, really have enjoyed it as a gameplay experience. I think it's very well balanced on the gameplay front with the one minor exception of me feeling like the factory dragged a bit and the Heisenberg bus fight. I'm I'm pretty much happy with the the actual gameplay. It it does come down to me really nitpicking at the lore. And I'm probably not even as bad as you guys because I can forgo some of the stuff that you guys have been talking about on a personal basis, but I can definitely 100% understand where you're all coming from. I know we um, obviously couldn't talk about it in the review podcast, but just before we move on, I do just want to say as much as it is a one-trick pony and it really doesn't have the same impact on any subsequent replay of the game, but that first time 
come through Beneviento, I will never forget for the rest of my life. And I'm just on so many levels frustrated that it's not in VR because that would have just been an absolutely mind-blowing experience given how good 7 was in VR. But at the same time, it would have scarred me for fucking life. I can assure you <laughs> that. Imagine being grabbed and eaten by that with the VR headset on. <laughs> oh my God. Everything Stars just said about House Beneviento, I mean, the whole community is talking about it, aren't they? Just absolutely wonderful. Just wish it had been just lasted longer. I do have a concern with it, which is that it was so, excuse me, as we've all said, it's got a really good first time impression, but the second time around, it's, it doesn't have the same impact. But my problem is that yeah, Capcom will look at the response of that and go, oh, more of that, and kind of shuffle more towards that direction. And I want to implore the idea that it's fine if they can come up with an elegant way to make that sort of hallucination yes. kind of thing work again, but don't just double down on the same trick because it's not going to work again. Work because we weren't expecting it. If you just do more of that, it's not, it's not the same. It's, it, it won't have the same my impact. My heart was in my mouth through so much of that. It was... Whoa. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if if, if Rombie's alluding to this, but I, I felt that, like, like you say, it's absolutely terrifying. It was almost like you know Resident Evil out Silent Hill, Silent Hill. But it felt it's like so much of this game for me with the extended cutscenes and parts of the game that almost felt on rails. After a few playthroughs, it kind of felt very staged, and you yeah, kind of was, knew yeah. that no, no, no matter how far away you were from the baby at the end, uh, when you got into the lift, it was always going to play out like it just got you. And so you're right, Rombie. You you need there needs to be a bit more depth to the gameplay if that's to be an extended stage yeah we talked about this a bit and i have still talked a little bit more with other people since but it's like the stuff with lady d for example like she is definitely a more uh, interesting foe than say the nemesis was as far as like creatively turning up but she isn't quite that mr x level because you can kind of trick her into getting stuck on things or you just run into the save room and she just kind of gets bored and runs off there's videos of people just doing circuits around the table and chairs in the main foyer bit of the castle i think i mentioned this to you guys one of the time as well is that it's very interesting when you have it was more of a dynamic when one of the daughters would turn up and she was there and i kind of wish that capcom had realized that and doubled down on that a bit more perhaps maybe not scripted but this had that element more often because i found that much more challenging it's interesting isn't it with this and i hope people have listened and taken on board that you know we we are fans of the game we love the game in fact most of us do we're just looking very uh, pedantically Far, far too much for our own good, I would say. We're the anti anti fan brigade, apparently. Is that Ant- what it was? anti fan? Yeah, that was a comment. An anti fan. We're not. We <laughs> love it. We love it. It's just that it's just something to think about, isn't it? Because if you don't address these points. It's something to think about for the future, isn't it? You know, for example, over-analyzing Umbrella Corps that's actually helped you in terms, or helped us, if you like, in terms of the now rotten element of the BSAA, if you, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the purpose of these podcasts, really, just to discuss um, the minutiae of, of the law. Can I bring up one last topic for us to discuss then on that front? I mean, I have to look at this in the bigger picture of the whole thing. Do we ever feel like some of these things can ever be reconciled? Like, the fact that we can sit here and, and pull three constantly because we are sitting here in the position as fans being able to analyze it and we're not doing it from the purposes as, as sean alluded to earlier with in regards to the craft of getting out a really good game do you think these things will ever mash up do we think that capcom can ever go down that narrative path where they will hit those notes perfectly or do we think that that's just an unachievable goal and we're always going to have stuff to nitpick <laughs> oh well almost certainly it's just the nature of fandom isn't it there's, there's never anything perfect for everyone no. That goes back to your thing, Rob, about it being um, appealing to everyone and no one. I think no matter what what game they make now, 
it will always have its critics and its fans. And I don't think they'll, you know, the, the middle ground is always going to be a murky place to live in. Which is why I think Village was so good, because I think yeah, it, absolutely. It, it hits a lot of law point for us to discuss. As, you know, one of our including comments in the last podcast was, this game is going to be talked about for years. Yeah. And it will. You know, I've said quite a few times on, on the Discord and on, on Twitter now, that is testament to how well the game is designed and the quality that Capcom have put into it, that it can still be this smorgasbord of ideas and not all of them work and there's some pretty, you know, hefty problems with the narrative and still overall be a really good package and a game and i see um you know it's just broke today that it's um is it top of sales i want to say yes yeah yeah. it was all set sales for may and playstation except for north america where it was second so four four million copies for ps4 yeah it sold very well obviously yeah we we need to have a discussion about the japanese sales at some point and the decline there but but um pn us and other international sales have definitely been huge what was people's opinions on the uh, the ending, the epilogue with grown-up Rose? I liked it for a sentiment. I'm on the fence with everything else about it. I, I thought it was a well-done scene in terms of like the emotional beat it was going for and the implication of the final moment, the figure approaching the car. I don't know what you're supposed to make of that because if, if you weren't able to hack the camera, people would have no idea who the figure is. You would take a wildly stab in the dark guess yeah. as to who it would be. I didn't even notice the figure the first time. No, I, I thought frozen, the game yeah. was frozen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, why is the car stopped way off in the distance? And then it wasn't until the second time I was like, oh, there's somebody walking there. Yeah. It's so yeah, it's, unobvious. It's really deliberate because the brake lights even come on on the car. Mm, that's what I noticed when I was like, I thought the game had just frozen or something. Rose's dialogue is very interesting because there's a moment where um, the agent says to her, you know, you're a lot like your father. And there's a very deliberate pause. And uh, I know. And I'm, I've seen some fan theory imply that she's able to sort of speak to Ethan through the the mold hive mind or something. The other part of the question is, when is this? What do you think, John? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go with Occam's razor and just say, look, it's a nice book to Rose and Ethan's story and it's her saying goodbye to her dad it's Capcom showing us that yeah she's going to get a happy ending despite that her dad not doing so and that's the end of their story and we're not going to see them again I don't think Rose is important I don't think she's going to come back I don't think we're going to hear from her I think the figure in the distance is just a load of bollocks and the whole scene it's just the ending for the story of the Winters and Resident Evil 9 is going to get back to concluded the mould story the mould trilogy with Blue Umbrella. That's what I think. Is it a time jump then or not? Yeah, it's a time jump because Rose won't have the same defect that Eveline did that caused her to have rapid aging. Or even if she did, because she was under the care of Chris and the government or whoever, they would make sure she got the medication she needed because Eveline went out of control because she'd gone rogue. There was no one looking after her. So, you know, she started to, uh, her cells began to divide rapidly and she aged to an 80 year old woman in the space of a year. And that's clearly not happened to Rose, so it's just a time jump for me. Nick, grab that piece of audio and save it, just ah. in case. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. I don't want you to eat your words, but if she does come back, I definitely want Nick to go. Previously, 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, if she does, fair enough, fair enough. I just, I, I just can't see it myself. I think it was just a simple scene to dis- just to show us that yeah, Rose is going to get a happy ending. I think that's all it is. But I, I, the, my question with that is, then why even show it? It didn't. It was unnecessary if it's not going to lead to something else. Like no, I just no, I just an implication so. of powers that Chris doesn't know about. The whole thick dynamic between her and the uh, operative guard that's looking after. Her. To me, I, there's I, big, I and then think... and then the whole bit at the end with the car stopping and someone walking. Why don't you name him? People on Twitter have put you know side by side comparisons and shown he's Wesker. Oh, God. Would people oh, really be happy that then if, if Resident Evil 9 was set 20 years in the future and continued Rose's story and just left a 20 year gap in the timeline and completely yeah, that, ignored that's a, that's a different statement. See, this is the I'd thing. Be, I'm, no, I wouldn't be happy with that. I'd be absolutely furious. I'd be very uh, frustrated with it because what they've done is, is effectively bring in a new super powered young lady when they've already got. A great one waiting Sherry. in the wings, yeah, with, with Sherry, you know, and yeah. and for all intents and purposes, like Rose and Sherry, ultimately have ended up in the same place. They're both enhanced humans or implied to be enhanced humans, you know. Why not just and, use the one Jake. you've got on reserve? And Jake, and Jake I'm not yeah. meaning in a bad way. And Jake as well, you know, not in a bad way. Like he's uh, he's just as powerful as well, yeah. Totally. I generally thought there was going to be they'd set this up as a trilogy and that, that Nine was going to involve the Winters but I think I'm with Batman because if this was going to be an end of the Winters then I think Capcom would have wanted to have bookended it in you know with, with like a positive but then Batman. why but the figure in the distance that's the well that's, 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 that's I think that's that's kind of a sentimentality bit for Rose that you know that she's got to say goodbye to her father but isn't that the point of her going to the grave? Like, uh, we need that little bit of extra out in case we need to do something with it. So there we go. That does conclude and finish our in-depth law analysis discussion of Village. We hope you enjoyed it. Let's look at the time. Have we got time for Neptune's biohazard quiz? Yes, we do. For the past eight years and five seasons... We have brought you groundbreaking lore, in-depth analysis, game reviews, and high-quality content. We've also brought you untold controversies and countless tales of underhand tactics, all in aid of the quiz. Uh, I just like to announce everybody that uh, this is zero points for me this week. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> so my nomination person said seven, but I didn't agree with seven. I said it was seventeen, and then you said it was seventeen. I didn't want people to think I'm cheating by just saying the same number that someone else has said. So I just, just the next number that sounds similar to seven is seventeen. I swear I did not cheat, yo. Quite frankly, if if we only got one point and that's the winning score, then we're not doing our jobs right and we're all going to have to hand in our biohazard cards. (laughs) Welcome to Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Trevor. Rob 
Hazard Quiz. Hello and welcome to a special Resident Evil Village edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. We have been sent five ludicrously difficult questions from JC Wesker, all to do with Village, so clear your Thanks, JC. Yeah, he's set a bar very high. Open up notepad. Here we go. Question number one. How do you tell the difference between the Dimitrescu daughters via hair colour and pendant colour? Oh, so you want to know the three different colours? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't even know I don't even know which which, which name goes to which, to be honest. No. Still. <laughs> I know there's a difference in colours, but I don't know which one's which, yeah. No, I'm hundred no. percent with you on that. Yeah. Question number two is a puzzle question. What is the correct order for the slideshow puzzle? The slideshow? So the film? Yeah, the yeah. films, yeah. The, the film, right, the film, yeah. The film reels, right. Film okay. reels, like, yeah, yeah. In-house Benevento, what Spanish word is written on the breaker box? God, I didn't see that one. <laughs> Why would you see it, Rob? Why would you see it? That's what you should be asking yourself. <laughs> <laughs> they like Thanks, JC. This one's possible. Question number four. What is written on the boat key tag? The little boat key you get? Yeah, I'm getting a big fat zero this week. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to get any of these. <laughs> they are ridiculous. Um... I've only played through the game once. <laughs> Question number five proves that J.C. Wesker has far too much time on his hands. How many pearls does Lady Dimitrescu wear? <laughs> I wonder what you were going with that question to begin with. Wow. Has he actually counted them? Like... <laughs> I, I assume so. I just got an image of like J.C.'s paused his TV and he's like right up against the screen with a magnifying glass looking at Lady D's like, cleavage and then Mrs. J.C. Wesker comes into the lounge and says, like, what, what are you doing? You need oh. to moderate these questions, Nick. I mean, bloody hell. <laughs> to be fair, I think he did say they were going to be difficult. Uh, there we go. They are the five questions. Join us after this and we'll run through those answers. <laughs> Question number one was, how do you tell the difference between the Dimitrescu daughters via hair colour and pendant colour? Rob? Okay, so I just know there's three different colours. I couldn't tell you which one's which. There's one that's blonde, one that's like brunette, and one that's dark, almost black or something, I think. And the pendants are like three different colours. One's red, one's blah, blah, blah. I, honestly, I'm getting a zero for this question because I couldn't red, tell you which blah, one's blah, which. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the, I can't remember which one's which. It doesn't really matter what I say because I can't associate with which daughter is which so okay you're, you're gonna I can't have, even have... tell the difference between the three of them anyway no I, I honestly i don't know which one you fight first second third the only clue jc you're doing better than me for yeah attention. george uh, yeah literally like the night before i was interviewing becca pruitt i suddenly was oh my word like i had to re- yeah which is which like so Bela has blonde hair and has a red pendant and then there's a one of them has a green i'm gonna have to guess either daniela or cassandra the other one has a green amulet i'm gonna say daniela has red hair and a green amulet and because i don't know that's that's all i can say okay 
Batman? Yeah, all I know is one has blonde hair, one has brunette, and one has dark hair. They all have different colour pendants, but I don't know what those colours are, I'm afraid. Stars? Cassandra, blonde hair, Bella, red hair, Daniela, black hair, and that's a total guess. I have no idea if it's right or not. Okay, the answer is Bella has blonde hair and a red pendant. Cassandra has black hair and a yellow pendant. Daniela has reddish dark hair with a green pendant. So a point to George Trevor. Well done, I'm giving you that. You got two out of three. So very well done. Thank you. Question number two, what is the correct order for the slideshow? Photograph puzzle. Start with Stars Tyrant. I can't even remember all five of them. I've got Book, Rose, Teddy, and Wedding Ring, and I can't remember what the fifth one is. I think I've got a feeling it's potentially a picture of them on the beach, but I, I can't remember. No, zero. Batman? You want us to give you the, the correct order? Can you at least tell us what they are? Would, would everyone like a clue on what they are? I know this, so I don't oh. have a clue. Oh, you big... Because I've done this puzzle so many times. <laughs> Consider yourself uh, cocked. Because I've played, sorry. No, the answer, Batman, because Rob does not need. Oh, well, piss off, Rob. No, 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 you, you can give them a clue. I don't mind. It doesn't bother me. That's what I'm saying. I know the five pieces of film. I still might get this the wrong order around because I did stuff it up. I know what the five pieces of film are. Right. Well, can I have a clue then, Nick? And I'll <laughs> sa- sacrifice half a point. Okay, we'll go back to stars and to give an answer as well then. Okay, so in no particular order, the answers are uh, Sleeping Rose, Wedding r- wedding Room, Music Box, Monkey Toy, yeah, it's the, music village, box. the Village of Shadows. Um, then I will go, I will go, Heady, Rose, Book, Music Box, Wedding Ring. Okay, Batman, back to you. I will go Village of Shadows, Book, Heady Bear, Wedding Ring, Rose... And what was the last one? Oh, music box, music box. Uh, that's, that's my order. George? Seriously, I'm just going to be pleased to remember them, just to recount what you just said. I've got no idea now. I mean, just, I, I'm just going to, so we're not waiting for you, I'm just going to remember them in any order. Teddy, music box, walking on the beach. So it sounds like I'm recounting album covers. Um, <laughs> can I park? Can I just pass? Because we've been so Fine. Long. Because I'm not going to get this, I'm not going to get this right. The toy stuff, toy book, rose music box, wedding ring. Correct answer. Sean, you're wow. one out, my friend. Unlucky point to Romby. That is correct. <laughs> Question number three: What Spanish word is written on the breaker box? I mean, as if anyone would know this. I'll just put it out to anyone. Does yeah, anyone know it? No idea. Uh, San Miguel. No. <laughs> <laughs> that oh god, no that's idea. why I'm it's, so knackered now. I'm assuming it has something to do with danger or electricity or something, probably. No, no, no Nick, I have no idea. The answer is peligro. Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> there okay. we go. What does it what does it mean, do we know? The answer is peligro, not Italian, which could have been Pericolo. If that would have helped in any way. A well-known English word, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Question number four. What is written on the boat key tag? Batman. Um, This is guessable if you don't know. Boat. (laughs) (laughs) George Trevor? I've got no idea. You said it was guessable. I presume it's got something to do with Moreau. Moreau's boat. Romby? It's a fish and it says gone fishing. Stars Tyrant? Yeah, because I didn't know it, and it's just an opportunity to throw in Capcom's favourite ever word, I'm just going to say sluice. <laughs> <laughs> if only, only. It's another point for Romby. It is gone fishing. Well done. And finally, how many pearls does Lady D wear? <laughs> <laughs> JC, seriously. A lot. <laughs> Closest answer. He's been this one, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Closest answer will get the point. It's above 50. Stars? 64. Romby? 72. George Trevor. 100. Batman. 54. One of you is one out. Ooh. 
<laughs> the point goes to Star's Tyrant. It's 63. You were so close. Oh, oh. <laughs> a belter. <laughs> and how do we know that's the correct answer? Can someone please officiate? Yeah, can uh, we have the verified, yeah. please? <laughs> JC's word for it. <laughs> yes, we are. And all complaints can Is be this... directed to him. There we go. So let's oh. have a look at the final scores and what a rare sight this is, ladies and gentlemen. With zero out of five, it's Batman. Unbelievable. No points for Batman in the Resident Evil. That's shocking. He's had a very bad attitude towards this game from the start, hasn't he? I mean, his intro was scathing. I, I came on this show thinking I was going to be the bad one of the podcast. but um, And to be fair, I actually only turned up because John said this was going to be a podcast about Mass Effect. <laughs> it's joint second place. It stars Tyrant and George Trevor with a point apiece. Yeah. But this podcast winner with two out of five, which considering the questions is highly respected, is Rombie. Congratulations. That finishes uh, this edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Join us next time when we'll have some more questions. There we go. So thank you for thanks, JC, for that. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that second thanks just sounded like something one of us would say normally. Like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that challenge. That was good. I enjoyed it. I'm not just saying that because I got two points. That does actually bring uh, our extensive look at Resident Evil Village to a close. And the second of our trilogy of Village podcasts. Next up, we'll be bringing the podcast to you, where we'll be having our community call-in podcast, where we'll be opening the floor up to your comments, and we'll listen to them. And usually what's great with these, they raise stuff we've completely forgotten. Uh, we'll be putting a call out on our usual channel for any MP3 call-ins, if you want to get involved and have your say in the next podcast. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. Once again, I would therefore like to thank everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. We hopefully raised a few questions, keep us all guessing and talking for the next two or so years. On that note, it is goodbye from me, Neptune. Bye from me, Bummer. Goodbye from me, Stars Tyrant. Goodbye from me, George Trevor. And goodbye from me, Rumble. Good night.